right, folks, this is episode eight of the Summit Up podcast for the month of April 2023. This month, we had another extended Q&A for the Cyber AB Town Hall, which is always an adventure. Jason and I dive into several questions that came in about NIST SP 800-171A, the upcoming revision three of NIST SP 800-171 and its impact on DOD contractors in the lead up to the CMMC program becoming effective and what will happen after the CMMC program becomes effective. We are also joined by two special guests this month, uh, Amir Armand, the president of Kieri Solutions, an authorized C3PAO and basically well-regarded CMMC genius throughout the community. Amira joins us to talk about the top 10 most common controls missed by contractors as found by DIBCAC during their assessments of DOD contractors over the last 6 to 12 months. Amira has been putting out some awesome content about each one of those individual controls. So Jason and I go down the rabbit hole with her on all 10 of them to figure out why people are missing them, what they are misunderstanding, and how they can do better and prepare themselves to have those controls fully implemented. We are also joined by Lauren Ayers, the Vice President of Defense and Intelligence at the Professional Services Council. Lauren was a longtime contract officer with the Navy, and she was kind enough to come on and share uh, her insight and expertise about a peculiar comment that was left in the Q&A section of the AB Town Hall about the effective date of CMMC and this person allegedly claiming that CMMC was already effective as of March. She steps us through the same process that she used to train new contract officers who used to work for her during her time at the Navy. I learned a tremendous amount about how the FAR and the DFARs and everything works together and definitely learned some things that I would not have otherwise been able to piece together myself. So definitely check out that segment because it was very, very insightful and very, very helpful. We now have a video available on Spotify. So for those of you listening on Spotify, you can now watch on Spotify. If you enjoy that feature, let us know. Leave a review and a rating on that platform. If you're on YouTube, please like and subscribe. Any other platform, leave a rating, uh, leave a review. And uh, if they're funny, we'll read them uh, in another episode coming up. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Let us know what you think. All right, dude. It's the first of May. You know what that means? We spring uh, is just here? spring is here, and uh, you know the, we just wrapped up the AB Town Hall for April and May. May is going to be a big month, so lots of stuff happened in April. Lots of stuff to talk about. Lots of Q and A from the town hall. Uh, lots of material to cover, and it's um, it's gonna, May is going to be an exciting month. So I'm happy to cover all the things for April as a lead in to some of the uh, events and anticipated publications and. Some of the craziness that's coming around the corner this month. So, uh, yeah, so the AB town hall for April uh, was pretty solid. Lots of lots of Q&A time, which we always love. And they just kind of covered a few things right at the top of the town hall that we were going to go over. They talked about some testimony from John Sherman, uh, in, some congressional testimony from John Sherman. They talked about some uh, things around assessor suitability determinations that was interesting, and then the Keiko Corner segment that they always go through. So, uh, yeah, so just super quickly on the John Sherman testimony, this was something we talked about in the last episode, episode seven, so people can go check that out. 
the interesting part that people should remember about the testimony, if you don't make it a habit to go listen to those, I always recommend that people do. They're very informative. But if you don't, the big thing that everyone's talking about is um, the CMMC rule is happening. You know, Congress is sort of asking DOD, like, why are you waiting so long on the rule? We're waiting right. for you to release the rule. Just like everybody, like Will Levis at the draft, we're all waiting for this rule to come out. And, you know, John Sherman said, hey, we're making sure we get it right. We're measuring twice and cutting once. Sort of took a very reassuring tone to Congress, who a lot of people sort of expect that Congress will say, oh, we don't want this rule to happen. That's causing too much disruption. When I listen to the testimony and the questions, I actually get the opposite of that, where it sounds like Congress says, what's taking you so long? We asked you to do this in 2020. <laughs> we would really like you for this, to, uh, you know, to issue this rule. However, the big thing that they always end up asking is, what are they going to do? What is DOD going to do to help the DIB? What are they going to do to help people with, um, you know, the cost and the burden and the complexity and everything? And one of DOD's main answers is the DIB-CS program. These are the tools and services that DOD provides and or subsidizes in some way that for several years now have mostly only been available to cleared defense contractors. So contractors with an FCL. And uh, they have created a proposed rule that would expand the access of the voluntary DIB-CS program to any DOD contractor that has DFAR, a DFAR 7012 clause in their contract. This has to go through rulemaking, just like anything else does. And it has to go through OMB regulatory review, just like any other rule does, like we've talked about before. And last month, the DIB-CS proposed rule got out of OMB regulatory review. So coming up in May, we will see the published proposed rule that expands access to DIB-CS programs and services for uncleared defense contractors, basically the entirety of the DIB rather than just cleared defense contractors. So that's something to pay attention to. And I know you've taken a, a more detailed look at some of these tools and services. We don't know exactly what's in the rule specifically, but we've sort of tried to look at the existing offerings out there, right? Yeah, I just got a few things to, to, to kind of add to that. Um, one of the great things about this is, is like you said, it opens it up to uncleared contractors, right? Because right now, the availability of these products and services that they are subsidizing and releasing to the DIB is very small. And so opening it up is great. But I, I think that as they open it up and as the rule is finalized and, and put into play, I, I think one of the things that needs to happen most importantly is a, a, a thorough communication as to exactly what these services are going to offer to, to yeah. organizations. Right. And what we've seen is, is uh, um, just recently within the past couple of weeks, we've seen uh, rumblings of new offerings being added to this catalog. Mm -hmm. um, the log management, uh, there's one that centers around log management and a couple other rumblings with no confirmation obviously from the organizations responsible for it. Um, but whatever it is, at least it's something that, that provides some help. How yeah. much help is very debatable depending on the audience, right? Yeah. And um, from my perspective, it, it's definitely something I believe that, and, and I said this last month too, is that I believe that the this catalog is something that every organization that has availability to do it should jump on it and should get it. 
but they yeah. need to garner their expectations as to what exactly they're getting and what still will remain yeah. for them to meet compliance requirements. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's definitely something to keep an eye out on. But yeah, so everybody knows, you know, uh, keep it, your eyes peeled or your ears open for, you know, our announcements and everything like that. I'm sure we're going to blast out everything once that rule gets published, but they are making those tools and services available to what degree they help with 171A and CMMC uh, is a matter that I'm sure we'll discuss on the next episode once we get more details about what is exactly in the rule. Uh, but that is something that John Sherman and the DOD are leading with when they're talking directly to Congress. So they're certainly going to make a big deal out of it once it's published. Okay. Uh, they also mentioned on the uh, AB Town Hall for April, suitability for uh, for assessors. So suitability determinations to get your CCP, suitability determinations to get your CCA, uh, so on and so forth. The part that jumped out to me is not the details of suitability, uh, which you know we can post a link to the AB website with the information of suitability. The, the sure. line that jumped out to me from Matt Travis was, he said, you can comment on suitability during rulemaking. And that jumped out to me because that would mean, assuming that that is true, that the details of things like assessor suitability are something that occurs in the rule, the CMMC rule, that will eventually be published. And so when you hear things like the rule is very long or the rule is very detailed or as a result, the rule is very complex, it's because of stuff like this. It doesn't just talk about you have to implement, you know, 800-171 and we're going to come and assess you. There's the details of assessor suitability. Like all of these details that you would think about are probably in the rule. That was just kind of a little clue in passing, I think, about some of the stuff that's probably in the rule. But it just really jumped out to me because you can imagine, you know, suitability is a very small detail in the world of everything going on with CMMC. And if that's in the rule, there's a lot of stuff that's going to be in the rule. I mean, this thing's going to be huge. So, you know, when you are trying to imagine like why it would be so big and what would be in it to make it so big, it's things like that. You have to cover all of these details of the program, uh, including things as important, but as minor as suitability determinations in the grand scheme of things. So I thought that was interesting. So I'm starting to get the impression, and I think it's more evident now that there is no stone being left unturned in this rulemaking process, even to the details of suitability. And although you say it's a very minute detail in, in, in the entire yeah, process, well, I'm, yeah, yeah. it is a hot button topic right For now. Sure. I can tell you, reading the Q&A section of the town hall, um, the oh, entire thing, suitability, of, something yeah. else, suitability, something else. Probably more than half of them are all like, suitability, yeah, right? It, just, yeah. it, it, it rumbles down there. One thing to remember, though, Jacob. The CCA suitability determination, right? That is a CMMC requirement, right? It's mm -hmm. not a requirement for you to become a CCA, a certified CCA. It mm -hmm. is a CMMC requirement that the AB imposes and the DOD imposes that will stop you from participating in assessments. So you can be credentialed and badged all day long, but you can't sit in on an assessment until you meet the suitability. Yeah, gotcha. As a, as a CCA. So you yeah. can't evaluate past the level one requirements and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I probably undersold the importance of suitability. I'm just saying like in terms of if you think of all the cogs on the CMMC wheel, right there, each cog of the wheel is going to be in the rule. And so like John Sherman said in his testimony, the measure twice cut once thing, you know, involves them going through details like this. And so, you know, it, it, and to that, to that end, right, this is exactly why counterintuitively, you don't want them to rush the rule out 
because if they fumble suitability, then we're going to have big problems on our hands. So, you're going to have a bottleneck. Yeah. yeah. And so you're not, you're not just, you know, trying not to fumble one thing. You're trying to juggle all of these issues all at the same time. But that was a line that Matt said that kind of jumped out to me that I thought people might find illuminating in terms of like, when you really think, step back and think about it, there's just a lot of stuff that they have to cover in the rule and make sure it is correct. Like I said, that's the irony of rulemaking ultimately is that the agencies don't want to publish rules that are unfinished for the public to look at, which means the rules essentially have to be finished by the time they're published for the public to look at. The bad part about that is it makes public comments generally less effective at changing what gets published. Uh, and it takes longer for the rule to get published, but what ends up getting published is generally very, very close to what ends up being final. So, um, you know, lots of things to keep in mind just from that one line from, from Matt there. Okay, so the the last of the three things that they opened up with at the town hall was the Keiko Corner uh, segment, and the you know information that jumped out there to me was just the quick reminder that for uh, provisional assessors out there to get their CCP uh, and or CCA, the deadline has been extended. In order to take and pass your CCP, it is now six nineteen is your deadline to take and pass. CCA is August 16th, 2023. So for those provisional assessors yet to take their, yet to take their, uh, their CCA, uh, you got a deadline, procrastination pays again. Who's got two thumbs and hasn't taken their CCA yet? This guy. So, uh, so yeah, I definitely wrote down those deadlines because I need to, I need to follow up on that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Kyle, Kyle Gingrich even said, she think, she's like, I think there's only a few people that this even applies to. And I felt, I felt uh, personally attacked because All of a sudden I'm got red faced. Like, <laughs> yeah, she's talking like, about me. Yeah. One of the three people that needs to finish taking. They're whispering so. in the background. Yeah. So but for a couple for, reminders, for the other two of us out there, those are your deadlines. You get two attempts. You got to make sure that, uh, that you get it wrapped up. And for both of you, just a couple reminders that the two of you <laughs> left to take it. Um, you only get two attempts per exam. Uh, that yep. includes a, a beta test, right? You get a 30 day cooldown period. If you should fail it, rescheduling fee, obviously you got to pay to take it often. And then uh, rescheduling and no-shows are not considered an exam attempt. But if you do fail the exam twice, you're going to have to go back through LTP training and, and no, no longer get those uh, those things awarded to you as being a part of the provisional program. Yep, yep, absolutely. All right, great. All right, everybody. We are joined by the great and powerful Amir Armand, everybody. Yeah. Here I'm we so go. excited for this. I Here am so we go. For this. You guys just, you're like, okay, we're going to get ready. And then you like put hats on. Yeah. Well, I love I mean, it. I love of it. Course, of course. I mean, this yeah. is, uh, yeah, this is, this is how we, this is how we, we, this is the only way we can keep up. Honestly. I mean, every time, uh, and this is in all honesty, anytime I've seen you present, anytime I've watched you teach, uh, anytime I see your posts on LinkedIn or your wonderful blog posts, uh, I always learn something new. And so, um, you know, I got to tighten down my boonie hat here and uh, hang on for the ride. So, Amira, how are you? How have you been? I'm good. I'm good. It's yeah. been it's been kind of busy, yeah. though. Um, I think this summer I'm going to have time for a little bit of a vacation because everybody oh. is oh, doing well, well, the... Well. Don't jinx it. Don't put that out. Should I? Should yeah. I? We'll edit that out in post so that the yeah. universe can hear it. But uh, yeah, no, that's great. I mean, your your uh, I mean, the amount of content and stuff that you put out is tremendous. In addition to 
teaching, running a C3PAO, everything else that you have going on. Uh, and so we wanted to have you on because the, uh, the top 10 other than satisfied controls that DibCAC presented on at the most recent CS2 events in Huntsville uh, was something that you are uh, deeply familiar with, that you have commented on beforehand. And you had a series of excellent LinkedIn posts sort of diving into the details of your perspective, having worked with clients, having you know gone through your own assessment to become a C3PAO. Uh, and you're going through each one of these top 10 other than satisfied controls. And so we wanted to have you on to get your perspective on what they are, why they are consistently the top 10 uh, common issues, common mistakes, and learn from your perspective and wisdom. So thanks for we sharing. Were just, we were just talking about the NFL draft, Jacob, and, and that series of LinkedIn posts is definitely my number one overall pick. I yep. absolutely yep. love it. I'm on mm -hmm. seats in whenever they come out because you're going to learn, like you said, we yep. always learn something. So we're grateful oh, for yeah. that. We're grateful for Yeah, we'll link to them. We'll link to them below as well. So, okay, here we go. Top 10 other than satisfied requirements. Take it away, Amira. All right. Uh, so like Jacob mentioned, Nick Del Rosso from DibCAC uh, was on stage at the last CS2, and he gave a presentation. This presentation is available from the DCMA website. You can see the link at the bottom. Worth Worth pulling down and looking at. You can actually get the exact percentages uh, for each of these, how often they're failed. Um, in fact, I think they've got a full 110 requirement breakdown uh, showing, awesome. showing each one. But uh, for the top 10, uh, yep, I'm about two thirds through my series talking about these on LinkedIn. And uh, I, I guess, uh, shall, we, shall we dive in? Yeah, um, please, yeah, absolutely. Let's go. All right, so other than satisfied, otherwise known as failed, not met, um, you're doomed. Yeah, the, the, the kind way of saying you did not meet this control is saying it is other than satisfied. Other than satisfied. Yeah, that's a DIPCAC thing. I haven't seen anyone else use that term, uh, but it's, it is a very kind way of saying it. So what I was looking at when I saw this this list is... This, this is not a list of the hardest to do requirements. Well, some of them are pretty hard to do. It's primarily a list of the top 10 misunderstood requirements okay. in my mind. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I so, can see that. So I'm going to go through and I'm going to explain where people go wrong on yeah, these perfect. starting from the bottom. Starting okay. with number 10. With number 10. Oh System yeah. Very dramatic. Time. I love it. <laughs> It's like right. Letterman's top 10. Yeah, this is great. Now, you guys have been preaching this for years, that the assessment objectives are where the rubber meets the road. Mm -hmm. this, this statement up at the top, this one sentence practice statement, that's nice. But when you break it out into all of the different ways that you can combine the words, mm -hmm. that's where it gets really ugly. Right. right. So you might be thinking, oh, establish and maintain baseline configurations and inventories. Oh, OK. Hardware. OK. So I'll just have a hardware inventory. Now, that's that's like right. one one. one part of it. And for those and for those just listening, the 10th uh, most common other than satisfied controls is 
3.1.4 system baselining. And the practice statement is establish and maintain baseline configurations and inventories of organizational systems, including hardware, software, firmware, and documentation throughout their respective system development life cycles. Quite a few open pits there of interpretation that people could run with if they don't look at the objectives, right? Yep. Uh, so the f most misunderstood part of this is what is a baseline configuration? Okay. A baseline configuration is how a system should be configured, not just secure, not just security wise, but functionally. Mm -hmm. uh, so an example of gathering a baseline or, or capturing a baseline would be if you're using a windows based environment, you could have group policies and scripts that configure all your computers to run a certain way. And, and that would be considered a baseline. Um, that plus maybe the way you image them, plus the manual steps you take to configure them all combine to make a baseline. And what, uh, and so yeah, that's a great, I mean, I love that you provided an example as well. When you've worked with uh, clients or um, you know, people who are planning on you know, getting an assessment, what do they, what's a sort of a common, what's the most common way that they interpret that if not what it actually means? Is there, is it, does it kind of run, does it kind of vary or is there a pretty consistent wrong interpretation? So most people I talk to simply aren't even doing it. Oh. They think that they think about the inventory, but yeah. they just completely miss the fact that there's this baseline thing out there. Gotcha. Uh, the, among the cybersecurity folks that, you know, and the, and the stronger cyber IT folks that should know better, where I see this going is they confuse secure configurations recommended by a vendor mm -hmm. with your baselines. Gotcha. So, and you, I've heard you mention this before, like even things like DISA STIGs are very helpful, but they themselves would not constitute a overall baseline, right? Correct. Correct. Now, with so, a summary of a STIG, so let's say I deploy a DISA STIG, and then I create a, a detailed summary of that STIG, would that be uh, enough to qualify as my baseline for a certain system? It could be a portion of your baseline, but gotcha. let's let's take, for example, a Cisco firewall. The Good STIG example. is going to give you instructions on how you set up the encryption, how you deny things, how you set up the user accounts in there for security. But it's not going to tell you which ports to allow, which ports to deny. It's not going to tell you the IP addresses or the routing to set up. Mm -hmm. That would be important for the baseline though. Sure. So that if the firewall dies and you need to rebuild it overnight at 2 a.m., you know what it's supposed to be. Gotcha. Yeah, no, this is really, really good. So yeah, I mean, you can definitely see if you forget the baseline configuration part of that control, which is pretty easy to overlook if you just look at the practice statement, but very, it's clearly, uh, it's clearly, I mean, it's a prerequisite. So, you know, this is the recommendation I always tell to people is when you look at the objectives in 171A, which for those watching, you can see it on the screen here, they occur from the top down. These aren't, uh, you know, they're, they're listed A through, you know, A, B, C, D, E, and so on and so forth, because the uh, objectives at the top will determine the objectives at the bottom, right? They are relatively linear. And so the first one on this control is a baseline configuration is established. And if you don't have it established, very, very difficult, if not impossible, 
to do the remaining uh, objectives, whether you're looking at it from an assessor's perspective or an implementer's perspective. So yeah, that's very, if you just don't do the baseline, then you're, you're kind of out of luck. The next nuance on this is that it calls out hardware, software, firmware, and documentation. Mm -hmm. the, the baseline configuration needs to include hardware, software, firmware, and documentation, as well as the system inventory needs to include hardware, software, firmware, and documentation. And that can be troublesome because if your assessor is reading this literally, and we are trained to read this literally, mm -hmm. we need to see at least one example of each of those categories. Gotcha. So when, when you're building your baseline, you should show us that you know what firmware version that system should be as part of your baseline, for example. Uh, your system inventory documentation, that one's kind of a hard one to show in your system inventory. Right. You know, what are you going to do? You're going to upload a manual, maybe yeah. an invoice to yeah, your... So that's what my question is, is that like when you say documentation, what's a firm example of documentation to support this? Is it you want me to upload the instruction manual for every firewall that I have? I... Uh, that that is Besides. something that, that unfortunately everyone needs to come up with the best idea that they can get for the system inventory it's it's really hard to to come up with great examples of documentation that works for every system yeah. i i certainly would consider a manual for maybe the more complex system types the baseline configuration documentation actually makes a lot of sense for baselines. So that could be a build checklist that you have built, that you have created or a process sure. that you have created. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that one's, and this is the number 10 most commonly missed one. I mean, there's, there's a lot to these controls, everybody. I mean, like you said, we've talked about this. We talk about this every chance we get, you have to look at the assessment objectives to see what that control is asking for. Do not be fooled sure. into thinking that only the control statement is what is involved. And good news, right? Good news. Number nine here, uh, 3.6.3 .3 incident response testing only has, uh, you know, only starts off with this one objective. And so they, should be easy, right? The control statement is test the organizational incident response capability. This is something that you hear from CISA alerts and CISA recommendations nonstop. Every time we hear other infrastructure sectors getting new security requirements imposed on them, uh, testing your incident response capability is always, always, always on that list. And this is the number nine most commonly missed, oh, sorry, most commonly other than satisfied uh, mm -hmm. requirement in DIBCAC assessments. So what, what's up with this one, Amira? All right. You guys will, will keep me honest on the numbering. Uh, so there's two ways that this is misunderstood. First, people misunderstand how hard this is to do. It's not that hard. Uh, you can do what's called a tabletop exercise where you pull out your internal procedures to do an incident, uh, which, which might say create a ticket in the system, call some people, um, document it, investigate, and resolve, right? That's a general broad outline of an incident response. Uh, and you just pull people in who might be involved with an incident, say, here's our scenario for today. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about how we might have detected it, what we would do first, 
who we call, how we escalate it, right? What happens if it's really bad? What happens if it's not so bad? How would we fix it? How would we proceed, right? And just, you just write notes. This is, this is, you don't have to change the system at all. You don't have to actually generate a real incident. No malware needed. You just talk through it and take notes. You know what it reminds me of? I don't know if you guys did this project when you were in elementary school, but I remember pretty often, probably every year in elementary school, we would have uh, like a fire safety week or something like that. And you got to do like the fire drill out of the bus and they get to do the fire drill at the school. One of the projects that we would do is what's your family plan for if there's a fire in the house? Where are you going to meet? How are you going to get out? Like, are you going to hop out of your bedroom window? Are you going to go over here? Do we meet in the front of the house, the back of the house? Stuff like that. I mean, that, that really is a very simplistic version of what we're talking about. You don't have to light your house on fire. You just talk about, you know, I remember we we would draw a map, right? And so you get to like draw your house and then like, yep. where yep. are we going to meet and stuff like that. Same idea, right? Hey, something bad could possibly happen with the way cybersecurity is going. Uh, that fire is more and more likely as each day goes by. When the fire breaks out, where are we meeting up? Who are we calling? What are we going to do? write it down and, you know, talk about it. However often, how often do you recommend Amira? At least once a year. At least so once a year, right? It, it, is, it is not set on here. It is mm-hmm. not set as part of the assessment objectives, which is a little bit strange. Uh, but the the vast majority of assessors, if, if you show them your one incident response test from four years ago, they're not going to be very happy with you. Yeah. And I mean, and this is one of those things where it's like, listen, especially for smaller companies that are the majority of the companies having to deal with the requirements. This is something that I recommend to very small companies pretty often is when you're trying to figure out where to start on security, if you are under-resourced and you don't have a lot going on and it's going to take a while for you to sort of raise your overall maturity, starting with incident response is not a bad place to start because at any moment, uh, you could experience something and not know why or be able to remediate very quickly. You don't have everything set up. Your prevention is certainly not, uh, you know, super duper great for the most part. And so if you get ransomware tomorrow, you don't really have to worry about your prevention controls first. You should probably worry about who you're going to call and what you're going to do. So this is definitely something that even though it's under the umbrella of ick, yucky, icky compliance is really going to be the thing that really kind of saves your bacon whenever something bad happens. The the last thing I'll point out in terms of misunderstandings, many companies go wrong because they think real incidents count as a test. Ah, they okay. do not. You need yeah. to do a fake incident. Gotcha. Um, even if, even if you're handling real incidents every day, make sure you do a test that's not a real one. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, Okay, so moving on to number eight here, 3.3.5, audit correlation. And the control text says, correlate audit record review analysis and reporting processes for investigation and response to indications of unlawful, unauthorized, suspicious or unusual activity. Quite a bit wordier here than the last one, huh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, This one is kind of complex, and it's a little bit hard to interpret. 
Uh, so there's there's two major ways that you can look at this. Okay. One is if you see something, you need to say something. If there's indications of bad stuff going on in your logs, you need to be able to identify it and then start the review analysis and reporting processes for investigation. Sure. Now, that normally, unfortunately, takes a technical solution mm -hmm. because once you get past literally one system, uh, it starts becoming impossible to look at all the logs right. in and an that's, environment. That's why those solutions have existed for a long time, right? I mean, these systems right. generate quite a bit of logs by even just by default. Right. Yeah, I, I, I would guess that my laptop generates more than 10,000 logs yeah. a day, if not 100,000, right. Uh, right. depending on the settings. Right. So um, the next way to interpret it is that you basically need a sim, a, uh, a log server. Mm -hmm. And you, you can, <laughs> as an assessor, I will say there, there is probably a way to do this practice without having a sim. Um, maybe you make yeah. an amazing practical. I mean, just, I mean, from a, from a, from a, you know, a real security versus compliance thing, like you could probably do it and say, oh, we do this manually. No one in their right mind would say when it comes to auditing and logging like that, that's your only line of visibility to know either what's happening or what did happen once yeah. the lights go out. And so, yeah, I mean, it's very, very difficult to, to get away without some sort of a solution here. I, I commented on Amir's post about this particular control, um, specifically about that scenario. Could you imagine showing up on your first day, fresh new cybersecurity job? And they're like, your job is to go in and review all the system logs of all 27 systems that we have. Yeah, manually, right? You wouldn't yeah. be able to, yeah, you wouldn't be yeah. able to. So now, Amir, is, it, is this one of the more common other than satisfied controls because people aren't doing it, like the one that we talked about previously, or are they missing up a portion of this? I, I would say that it's probably because they're not doing it. Um, so the, the assessment objectives, uh, where people are probably going to misunderstand this is that you have to define your audit record review analysis and reporting processes, mm -hmm. which means in assessor speak, write it down somewhere. Right. Write down how you do this. Now, that could be in your system security plan. You could say the way we do this is we have all the logs from our various systems send to a central log server, which then performs analysis and, you know, groups all the logs up together and correlates activity between them to determine if there's an issue. Uh, or you could have a series of policies or procedures or something, right? But it, it needs to be written down. And when you read the the practice statement at the top, it doesn't say anything about defining right. your processes. Right. Uh, so that's probably a point where people miss this. Uh, and then, of course, the technical solution of a sim. That's normally with the with the companies that I have talked to. It's normally one of the very last things that they do on their implementation journey for eight hundred one seventy one. And a lot of times they don't get all of the 
systems uh, logs yeah. into that log server. Yeah. Yeah. This is an interesting one because this is also uh, not only almost always on the most common other than satisfied controls, it is also very commonly on the minimum acceptable security outcomes list from CISA uh, cross-sector recommendation, because if you don't have the logging and the ability to correlate them, then you don't know what happened. And I always find this to be uh, very interesting because you hear government agencies always talk about the importance of providing cyber threat intel to their supply chain and to their contractors and incident reporting from those contractors. But if you don't have visibility via auditing, logging, and correlation, your ability to ingest those indicators is basically worthless and your ability to report an incident is also essentially worthless. And so if people aren't doing the logging and auditing, then that threat intel and incident reporting information sharing cycle doesn't work. So I find that to be a very, very interesting wrinkle in terms of how everything goes on because it sort of begs the question, like if you're not going to make them uh, and require everyone to do their logging and auditing, then the government won't be able to realize the goal of widespread information sharing and incident reporting. So what feels like this very kind of ticky tacky detailed requirement in the eyes of the government is extremely important. So the fact that it's on the top 10 other than satisfied list is very concerning to them. It, it is interesting that so much of the government cybersecurity focuses on detection yeah. as opposed to strong boundaries. It's, yeah. The, the firewall, sure, you should have a firewall, but there's a lot out there for, you need logs, you need to look at your logs, yep. you need to yep. configure your logs. Yeah, they want to see and hear what's going on almost more than anything else. But yeah, the precursors to be able to do that are things like logging and auditing. And speaking of which, sort of moving on to number seven here, 3.3.4, audit log, or sorry, audit failure alerting. The control text says, alert in the event of an audit logging process failure. What the heck does that mean? Okay. So let's let's talk about a quick story. Okay. okay? We like stories. We like stories. So a defense contractor, they get contacted by the FBI, and the FBI says, hey, we noticed that a bad guy that we've been monitoring has completely breached you. Mm-hmm. They own your network. Okay. And they've, they've been fun, owning your network. This is not a fun story. A while. This is not Sorry. a fun story. Okay. It's a okay. weird way to find out. <laughs> and the, the defense contractor says, what? No, they don't. Right. So they go pull in an incident response team. They start looking through the logs and there are no logs. Okay. And they say, but I think we, I, I thought we set up the logs, but there's no logs now. Well, whether or not they set up the logs originally, there's no logs now. The defense contractor can be swearing that they they did it right. Yeah. But we're still in trouble because we don't have logs. This is why we get requirements like this, because some defense contractor did that, or probably actually a government agency did that. Mm-hmm. And NIST said, okay, well, I guess we need to have a requirement to alert somebody if the logs turn off. Gotcha. And so this is sort of like the, the uh, famous, uh, you know, ubiquitous story of 
you know, we've been doing backups regularly for years, but we never actually checked to make sure that they were running and then something happened and we don't have the backups, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. This is, this is how even, new requirements are born. We've yep. been logging and auditing for years and then something happens and we don't actually have the logs that we thought we had because there was some sort of a, what they refer to here in, in, in NIST speak, logging process failure. Yep. So uh, the, the key parts of this, and again, the, the assessment objectives can be misunderstood in that people don't even look at them. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to identify who will be identified, who will be notified right. if you're at log stop. So you need to have a list of people. You need to write down your SSP. You need yeah. to have a who policy. Who gets the text message when things stop working, right? Right. right. And, right. and most people aren't going to write that down based on the statement at the top. Right. Uh, next, you have to define what sort of failures will generate an alert. Again, a writing exercise. Mm -hmm. And then finally, you need to actually make sure that those personnel are alerted. Now, uh, when we say alerted, this is a push type alert. Mm -hmm. It's not something where they go in and check. They need to get the information pushed to them. Some, you know, maybe a flashing strobing light, a message, an email, oh, something. A raven, something, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe the computer, you know, sets right. off a firework. I don't this know. This is like, hey, the temperature in the server room has gotten too hot and there's a problem. You're getting a message as a result. Same idea, right? The logging has stopped for some reason. Somebody needs to take a look at this. You get a message, right? An email, right. a text message, a phone call, a Raven. I would honestly, if somebody did a, if somebody has set up a, a Raven process, please, please let us know. We would love to do a site visit and check out your cool birds. Now, for this practice, a lot of people struggle with how in depth they set it up. Do they set it up for every computer in their environment? Do they set it up just for the servers, just for the network equipment? And that goes to the assessment objective B, the types of audit logging process failures for which alert will be generated are defined. Mm -hmm. uh, meaning you get to define what construes an audit logging process failure for you. I generally would not recommend saying that your Windows 10 computers or your MacBooks need to be online 24 seven generating right. logs because people turn them off. That's normal. But for devices like a firewall for a core server, that's more of a 24 seven type thing. You probably should have a lower threshold for uh, when a, a, a logging stops and how long you get before you get an alert. Right. Yeah, sure. absolutely. And to the previous, uh, you know, uh, you know, common control that's missed, uh, number seven, if you aren't doing logging in the first place, you probably don't have an alert set up for an odd uh, logging process failure because you're not doing it, right? Correct. So they, they kind of go hand in hand, which, mm -hmm. you know, speaking of which, right, the number sixth most common other than satisfied control is yet another auditing and logging issue, 3.3.3 event review, which says, review and update logged events, obviously predicated on the idea that you are doing logging in the first place. 
Yep. Now this one is definitely a misunderstood requirement because it is pretty easy compared to the other 110 requirements. Mm-hmm. When people read this, they think, oh, I'm supposed to go look at the logs. That's what it means to most people when they first read this. Review and update logged events. I go and review and update logged events. Yes, I do this. Right. Yep. And what it actually means is you need to change the settings on how your logs are generated. Gotcha. Uh, so the, the best case scenario for this is you're doing an incident response test. Good on you. Hey, we do we do that. That's not a commonly other than satisfied control. I I, I do too. I fe- I feel <laughs> it. Right. So you've got a scenario where maybe um, somebody walks into your building and they're a bad guy, and the way they're going to attack is they're going to plug in a malicious thumb drive to a computer, and then the thumb drive is going to attack the computer and. Um, basically run ransomware across your network. Okay. So that's the scenario. So during the scenario, you realize that you don't have any logging that would detect if that happened. So you write as part of your lessons learned for your testing, Hey, we ought to change our, our audit log settings to make a note when somebody plugs in a thumb drive, and when the thumb drive attempts to execute software, we should log those things. Uh, <clears throat> and that feeds directly into 3.3.3, where you are actually making changes to the things that are logged, right? You don't need to log every event. Um, if, if I don't know if you guys have ever turned on debug mode on your computers, <laughs> but you can run through your entire hard drive in about a day uh, and run out of space just because of the amount of logs being generated. Right. Very noisy. Yep. Yep. So we don't need all the logs. We need the right logs. And this requirement is saying, hey, change the way you log so that you're getting the stuff you actually need to detect offense. Right. Yeah. Again, so this yeah. one. Oh, oh sorry. Go for it. No, you go for it. Jay. This one is one that I have a story about. We all love stories. Um, but. Uh, this one is one where an organization called out in the SSP perfectly saying that we have an external service provider that does this for us. Our managed you know, um, service provider and our managed security service provider um, are working in tandem to do this. And then when they dug under the hood to get the logs and reviewed, what they found out was, is that actually instead of updating, they were updating the logged events, but the updates that they were making were actually suppressing them so that there was less, um, less events happening so that there was technically less work doing essentially yeah. saying that you get this service. Yeah. We're looking at your Sentinel logs, um, but they're not generating anything. And, and this is one of those cases where no news is not exactly good news. Like right? when, when NORAD ch- ch- updated their logged events to include weather balloons. And all of a sudden we found out that there's balloons everywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Too soon. I don't know. Maybe uh, anyways, <laughs> we're all like balloons. We're, we're going up here. We're moving up the list to, Number five, the number five most commonly other than satisfied control, not an auditing and logging uh, requirement here, 3.11.2, vulnerability scan, which says scan for vulnerabilities in organizational systems and applications periodically, and when new vulnerabilities affecting those systems and applications are identified. 
right. How hard could it be, Amira? How hard could it be? <laughs> what a sigh. This this is one of the harder technical ones, uh, but it is also misunderstood. So we've taken that nice sentence that Jacob just, just read off, and we've split it out six different ways, five different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, so first off, you need to define how often you're going to scan for vulnerabilities. Uh, both, let's see. And then you actually need to show that you do the vulnerability scans at that frequency. Uh, Now, they split it out by organizational systems, which I assume means, say, Windows Server, uh, firewalls, um, you know, desktops, Linux servers. And then they split it out by applications. Now, applications can mean different things depending on the assessor. When when I think applications, I'm thinking of fairly complex mm-hmm. server apps that you yeah. install, like database systems, ERP systems, websites. E- ERP is the first thing that comes to mind when I think of mm-hmm. a major sort of business application that would be called out here. Right. At least that would and commonly the, show up for defense contractors. Well, what about cloud apps? Re- what was that? What about cloud apps? Oh boy. That's an inheritance thing. Okay. Okay. Let's say, <laughs> let's, let's, let's let everybody tighten down the, the, the strap on your boonie hats here. We'll save the cloud apps conversation for a little later. <laughs> yeah. That That's a totally different topic, which we do need to talk about at some point. But uh, that's where the misconception comes in is that people think, Oh yeah, my cloud apps are scanned because I inherit everything. And then they ignore the things like the ERP system and, and right. other things that are in scope. So, um, that that is one of the reasons why this is you know commonly missed yeah. because it is a very complex requirement. Yeah, it's a good point. So somebody needs to scan those cloud apps. Hopefully, you're making sure that your cloud vendor is scanning their cloud apps. Um, that's the that's the very short version of the story. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah. the reason why applications are called out separately is because quite often in those complex programs. There's vulnerabilities inside the program that you cannot realize. You cannot see them from outside. You have to actually log into the program and run through it to find the vulnerabilities on the inside. Mm -hmm. So if you simply scan the outline Linux server, for example, it might not realize that you have a vulnerability inside your WordPress website or inside your database. Next, let's see. So the, the the next way that people misunderstand this is it requires you to do the scans both on a f- certain frequency as well as when new vulnerabilities are identified. Right, right. And that's that's real tricky. So it, does does anybody remember the the log four shell vulnerability? It was like two oh, yeah. years ago, yeah. right? And yeah. like all the companies had vulnerable systems. Mm-hmm. That's an example of doing a vulnerability scan when new vulnerabilities are identified. So mm-hmm. when you start getting the CISA alerts and, and the LinkedIn conversation going, oh my goodness, this is big. Yeah. You want to be able to show the assessors that you ran a 
ad hoc manual bone scan yeah. based on that information. Which, which should be a relatively easy way to kind of, you know, start getting, you know, reassuring your assessor that things are going well, because for people that are paying attention, when they walk in the door, they could say, hey, when Heartbleed came out, when Log4 Shell came out, when Hafnium happened, and everyone on the planet who was tuned in at all knew that there was a thing to look for in these indicators, what did you do? And the answer should be, we did what everybody else did. We scanned for this thing in accordance with the guidance from CISA or wherever we get it from. And, you know, we move on with our lives. But if you didn't do that, that's a pretty easy one to miss. You know, there is no sort of halfway on that one, right? Like it's uh, right. you're either listening to, you either have your ear to the ground and doing what the guidance says, or you're just going to miss this control. So um, another thing that could get people with CMMC, and this, this one is up for some debate, so I'm not going to say that I know for sure what the right answer is. But to me, this reads as an enterprise type of requirement, meaning that you don't just scan the systems that have CUI on them. Right. You scan and, the other stuff in your network too. You would hope so. I mean, so, and this is like, you know, stepping back from like the CMMC or CUI enclave, like all of your internal external system boundaries, like vulnerability management is some blocking and tackling basic security stuff, right? I mean, when you talk about scoping, which I know, you know, Amira, you've got some content that recently came out that goes into scoping. You can get really in the weeds about like where the controls apply. But when we're talking like logging, uh, vulnerability management, I mean, these are pretty basic, like universal will never not be top five recommendations from anyone on the planet ever kind of thing, right? If you're not spreading it across the enterprise, you're just introducing a whole world of hurt that you don't want to talk yeah. about, right? I mean, I guess you could say we only do vulnerability management within the CUI enclave because that's the only thing we have to do. But I mean, you know, come on, like this yeah, is, you're, you're really playing with fire at that point. And this is, it, that's not a smart thing to do. <laughs> because lateral movement can still happen and it'll be undetected lateral movement. And all you have is logical boundaries in place. And those logical boundaries can be poked and prodded at up yeah. until yeah. the point where stuff happens. So, yeah. And and I would generally, as an assessor, I would only look at your enclave. If you say that that's where I have the CUI, I'm really going to look inside the boundaries of that enclave. But I, I want to see that you understand the vulnerabilities at play with your firewall, with your gateways, uh, with For your sure. remote devices. Sure. Another way this can go wrong is you're not getting your remote users. Mm -hmm. So if you send people home with laptops, you should have a, a method to scan those laptops. And typically that means that you will install an agent on the laptops that can reach out or they can phone home and get scanned. Right. Uh, if you don't have an agent like that, then it can be a little bit more difficult to get them. But you are expected to scan everything. Yeah, okay. yeah. And just stylistically, before we head off of this control, you know, this is one of the this is one of the ways that that NIST decides to design control language that I have an issue with because this is really two controls that are compounded together. Right? They're the same idea, but scanning for vulnerabilities in organizational systems scanning for vulnerabilities and applications 
both on a periodic basis are two different things. Separate from that, scanning for vulnerabilities that affect those systems or applications when new vulnerabilities are identified. And so when you look at the assessment objectives, we're really doing the same three things twice, right? We mm -hmm. are defining a period, then we are doing the vulnerability scanning within that defined period for, for org systems and apps. In mm -hmm. addition to that, we are saying when new stuff comes up, we are doing vulnerability scanning. And so like you were saying, you really mask a lot of stuff under the hood with just these like very open-ended compound control statements that are listed in 171. If you do not look at 171A, you will 100% miss what that control is talking about. I don't personally agree with those design choices. I think that, you know, there's a case to be made on this side that they're doing this to make it more open-ended and flexible, but it really just ends up being more confusing for everybody because they're two separate documents. So please, please, please look at the assessment objectives. That is really, after a while, and I think you've probably seen this, Amir, especially teaching so many courses, after a while, when you read the control statements, you can kind of tell what the assessment objectives are going to ask for because of some of the keywords that show up. Um, but it's it's really difficult to do it, especially for people that don't have a lot of experience with the way that NIST phrases things with these compound uh, sentences and these like sort of hidden keywords in there. It, it is so common that we fail. We other than satisfy companies <laughs> because they forgot to define something. Yep. Yep. It's the silliest reason to fail one of these requirements. Th this vulnerability scan on a, on a medium business Performing this might cost $10,000, $20,000 per year. Writing a sentence yeah. <laughs> is like a $10 thing. And they could fail their assessment because they forgot to define something. Yeah, yeah. And mm -hmm. it's it's yeah. one of those things, you know, the perspective that I, I always tell people to remember is that, you know, you can make it obvious for you within your organization, but your assessor is coming in and they don't know, they don't work at your organization. And so how would you show somebody, how do you, the, the real question with 171A is all the assessment objectives are ultimately rolling up to how do you know that a control is implemented properly, configured correctly, operating the way you intended and producing the desired outcomes? How would you know? right? The way you know is by answering all of the questions as assessment objectives. Same thing. You know inherently that I got the right answer on this math problem. But if you don't show me the work on the math oh, problem, man. I don't know how you got the answer. And so will I, will, I, will I miss the points on this math problem on the test, even though I got the right answer? Yes, because I don't know how you got the answer. 171A is how do you get the answer to the math question? No one ever likes showing their work in math class, but we all know why we end up having to do it, right? That's always the metaphor that I end up using. And this uh, this control, I think, is a good example of why it's so important. You just triggered my trigonometry PTSD, dude. Your, your trigger trigonometry? Yeah. <laughs> triggered my trigonometry, yeah. That's a, that's a it's a tongue one, twister. Yeah. Trigonometry yeah. Okay. twister. <laughs> rapidly, uh, rapidly ascending up here, uh, the list on uh, number four of most commonly missed, or sorry, most commonly other than satisfied requirements, 3.11.1, risk assessments, which says 
periodically, here's that word again, periodically assess risk to the organizational operations, including mission, functions, image, or reputation, organizational assets, and individuals resulting from the operation of organizational systems and the associated processing storage or transmission of CUI. Thanks for nothing, NIST, because we, we had a five-word sentence uh, three controls ago, and now we've got this behemoth here. What are they talking about, Amira? They, they basically want a document that writes down a list of your assets. And, and look at this. NIST has given us a list of things to consider as assets. Our, our mission, our functions, our reputation, our organizational assets, our individuals. Right. Like, These are all risk, risk assets, if you will. Right. Risk assets, if you will. Right. Things that could get get attacked. Sure. That, that could be threatened. Yeah. Uh, so identify the assets, which should include your CUI. And then identify what could attack them from a cyber adversary or cyber threat perspective. This could also include physical threats like tornadoes, hurricanes. Figure out how you are trying to reduce risk from those threats and actually lay out kind of a numerical score, right? So our risk from phishing is 50 out of 100. Our risk from somebody walking into our building and putting a, a bad thumb drive in is 5 out of 100, mm -hmm. right? Significant differences in risk, they, they could both be bad, but the odds that somebody is actually going to come to your computer and attack the computer as opposed to a prince in Nairobi. Sending you an email. <laughs> sending you an email. Right. A little bit different, right? right? One's much more likely than the other. Both might be equally bad. Right. Uh, so, and then you need to look at these resulting risk numbers and say, which ones can I accept? Which ones need to be lowered? Right. right. So we might have decided that that phishing number being 50 out of 100 is way too high. We're going to get ransomware. It's going to be a disaster. We cannot allow it. So what do we need to do to reduce risk further? Well, can we implement a spam filter? Can we uh, set up a system where attachments to emails are designated before they get delivered? Mm -hmm. Right. Just to see if they're bad. Uh, can we set up a DNS filter? Right. All of these things you can add and they reduce the risk. And then you can, again, calculate that score. And now maybe your phishing email score is a 10 out of 100. And you go, that's pretty good. Right. Yeah. Anything, anything more than this is going to start costing me way more than what I think would happen to my company over the next right. five years. Right. Yeah. And, sure. you know, the interesting thing about risk assessment is in the in the world of the much larger catalog of NIST controls in 853 from which 800-171 is directly derived risk assessment is the ultimate precursor to all of the other controls because whether or not you include those controls and to which degree you implement and configure and tighten down those controls are a function of your risk assessment which in the context of how 853 was designed, these are a catalog of controls that are designed to be handed to federal agencies and organizations that have enterprise management, that have risk assessment, that have all of these issues. And so 
the 853 catalog never needed to explain how to do a risk assessment, what method to use, subjective, objective, you know, your mathematical foot, what, whatever method you decide to use to assess your risk was a, a foregone conclusion. It was the idea that you were doing it, which is the entire reason why you were looking at the controls. So the idea that risk assessment is one of the most commonly other than satisfied controls uh, conceptually means that your implementation and configuration of every other control in 800-171 is sort of disconnected from your concept of risk. You know, one of the very, very common criticisms that we hear about 800-171 is it is not risk-based. And yet one of the most commonly missed uh, other than satisfied requirements is risk assessment. So, you know, we've got a little bit of a, we've got a little bit of a, you know, sort of disjointed conversation around the requirements here, I think. This is one of my favorite requirements. If you can say any of them are a favorite. I, I think that this provides so much value to an organization because any time the DOD lets us use our brains mm -hmm. to figure out better ways to protect our environments in an efficient manner, it's amazing. We need to take advantage of it. Yeah. And, and I mean, really, you know, this, this control statement is saying, hey, we're really just there to see what you're doing with your risk assessment when it, when it is associated with the processing storage transmission of CUI. But that does not preclude you from using this as a very basic outline or framework for your risk assessment for your enterprise, for your whole organization. The DOD just wants their assurance that, hey, when we when you have our CUI in your environment, you're also extending all of that stuff over to this these CUI assets as well, right? Yes. Okay, great. So if you haven't done your risk assessment in a formal way, this is a great way to start, if you will. And this ties into the DFARS 252-204-7012 adequate security, mm -hmm. where they say you shall do the 8171 requirements and, you know, adequate security. If you see that there is a major risk to your environment that's not covered by those 110 requirements, they still expect you to resolve the risk. Of course. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, phishing. Phishing is a great example, right? There's no requirement to have spam filtering right now. There's no requirement to detonate attachments before you try and run them on workstations. RIP Delta 20 from CMMC 1.0. Yep. 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 I know those were great requirements. Objectively uh, good security requirements. But, but they're no longer there. But if you do a risk assessment, pretty much any company today should be going, wow, I think I need those if I don't want to have downtime and rebuild all my computers to a ransomware. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh yeah, it's a great point. Alrighty. Uh on to the top three now. Top three. So the third most commonly other than satisfied control, 3.14.1, flaw remediation. Identify, report, and correct information and information system flaws in a timely manner. What? I am just grateful that NIST didn't split information away from information system flaws. Okay. 
uh, because that would have resulted in 12 assessment objectives instead of six here. Sure, sure. So, see, this they, is they were they were they were helping us. They were doing. See? Yeah. So yeah, what's everybody what's everybody up in arms about? <laughs> um, this is basically just saying patch your systems. Patch your systems. A flaw right? being exactly what it sounds like. Yep. Uh, but the reason why, in in my mind, this is probably misunderstood, is because we have just a ton of documentation and like it, it splits it out into things that 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 top level statement doesn't really yeah. make evident. Yeah. So, for example, you need to specify how long you have to identify new system flaws. Mm -hmm. Great. One month, right? Whatever. Sounds 90 good. days, 30 days, they 15 don't specify days, the value in, in 853 parlance, which we would, we anticipate that in the upcoming revision of 171, they will include the 853 way of describing this. This would be known as an organizationally defined value, right? how often mm -hmm. you need to conduct your backups, how often you need to, whatever your defined parameter is, is defined by the organization and organizationally defined value. Right. Now, the next one, which very few people specify is how long you have to report system flaws. Right. And then, and then it gets into how long you have to correct system flaws. Now, in a typical small medium business, we just patch the systems, right? We it's it's Patch Tuesday. We 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 tell the systems to install. We reboot them. We go on. But according to these assessment objectives, no no no, we need to somehow document that we told somebody that there's system patches available, and then. We have to, so we have to identify that there's system value patches available somehow in a recorded manner for evidence. Mm -hmm. Then we have to tell somebody again in a recorded manner for evidence that the, the patches are available and then we need to patch them. Mm -hmm. Most companies just skip to the end. They just patch. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and by breaking it into these multiple stages, they're assuming that you have like a dedicated vulnerability slash vendor management team. Right. And then you have a dedicated ticket team, maybe, right. maybe an engineering team to Which test. sounds a lot like, you know, the echoes of a larger federal organization for which yeah. 853 was designed. This was whittled down and they said, well, if you're doing patch management and vulnerability management, how else would you possibly be doing it if you didn't have a team of people working on it? Right. Right. Which, you know, this is, and, and, you know, to be fair, this is less of a CMMC problem than it is with the underlying requirements and their assumptions problem that CMMC has exposed to the world, if you will. They, they are assuming that these small companies have a unlimited government budget for IT. Yeah. Uh, which is a little bit problematic. Um, but good news for this one. Just make sure you specify it, include some process to note when you identify system flaws, and then some process to report, AKA put in a ticket. Mm -hmm. 
maybe maybe it's, uh, maybe mimicking mimicking that this you know this control maybe mimicking your vulnerability uh, management control and sort of doing the same types of things you do for hey we found out about this this is the fix this is what we're going to do uh, like you said conceptually people don't really think about that in terms of their patching but uh, maybe if you follow along with the one that we talked about previously with vuln management you're probably probably getting closer to what this control is looking for. Yeah. Yeah, there's some that you could wait for patch Tuesday, and then there's some like zero day stuff or zero day associated stuff that you're going to want to act on as soon as possible. So sure, sure. Alrighty, Amira, the number two here, number two. If you're not first, you're last. But this is a this is a big one. Three dot five dot three multi factor authentication. Use multi factor authentication for local and network access to privileged accounts and for network access to non-privileged accounts. Every time there's an and in one of these control statements, I get I get very annoyed. But ultimately, we're talking MFA here. This is the second most common other than satisfied control. It's probably the most common recommendation that you hear from everyone. So what the heck is going on? This is a combination of misunderstandings as well as technical issues. Okay. Uh, so most companies have a fairly easy approach to set up multi-factor authentication for network access, meaning uh, their, their core directory can prompt for multi-factor when you are signing into Active Directory or Okta or whatever you have, right, with your main accounts. Um, though I will say some some companies, you know, they have systems that are not not terribly standard. Okay, so fun 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 information. Basically, all of the core requirements that we see in 853, they assume uh, that you can perform them because Windows can do it. Ah, okay. Right, the government. The government's been using Windows for a long time. Oh, yeah. They don't write requirements that Windows cannot do. Um, it's a very good point. Just a, just a fun fact. So uh, sometimes you've got systems that are not Windows-based and you can't do MFA on them. Mm -hmm. And that might be a case where you, you have a technical issue, uh, which could certainly knock lots of companies out. One of the strategies for that is putting into place a multi-factor prompt before you reach that system. Got so if, if you've got a, a weird system that is not able to do MFA, you can put a jump box mm -hmm. or a virtual desktop or something in front of it, make people MFA to that, and then they can reach to that other system once they have yeah. multi-factor. Which as far, I mean, as far as, you know, a deployment perspective is not, is not incredibly complicated compared to a standard deployment on everything. I mean, it is an extra step, but it's not, you know, it's not, it's not really crazy as far as technical, technical impact. Although if you're, if you're getting by on a shoestring and trying to figure this out on your own, it might be a pretty big step, but it, right. I, it is a good recommendation though. Mm -hmm. it, it, it is definitely a process of designing your architecture so yeah. that, people can't circumvent that that protected method. Now, here's a here's a live mm -hmm. one for you. Now, would that sort of uh, placing that MFA prompt in front of the system that itself cannot have MFA on it be 
what you would consider in NIST's language to be one of these alternatives or compensating uh, controls or implementations? In this case, I would not. I would actually just consider it a plain implementation of this practice. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, alternative implementations are are something literally an alternative, right? Yeah, they're they're tricky and dangerous. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. It's definitely uh it's definitely an interesting topic for sure. But MFA. So, and this is you know bigger picture. We've talked about this on the show before. When Nick Del Rosso got up at CS2 Huntsville and said. The top 10 other than satisfied controls have not changed since the last time I got up on stage at CS2 six months ago. And the number two most common other than satisfied control is MFA. And long before Nick Del Rosso and Dibcac started compiling their data, we saw that MFA was just not being implemented. Uh, that does not build a case for the DOD to decide to do something other than come and assess you, right? The fact yeah. that MFA is so important, universally recommended. Jen Easterly talks about MFA as the director of CISA literally every time she posts something, speaks into a microphone. It is MFA is the first thing that she talks about. And so if MFA is not being implemented broadly and it is a finding by DOD's own assessors, then you can guarantee it will be a point of emphasis it is, it's not something that's going to go away. So the higher so even Nick has said, right. yeah. Yeah. Nick has said multiple times that this is not necessarily a, a people who are completely overlooking and ignoring this. This is one of those dough smack on the forehead moments where they're like, Oh, I didn't even realize that I needed to have MFA on that particular server. Yeah, or, yeah. Oh, yeah, You know what I mean? So it's like incomplete implementations where they tried, they gave it all value and effort and then, Oh, wait, you mean I got to put it on there too and on there yeah, too? Yeah. So, I mean, that is one thing that has to be thrown out there when we talk about this. Like sure. it's been in CISA alerts for 10 years. For yeah. 10 years, the one of the most recommended things on any CISA alert has been MFA. Like you said, Jen, Jen Easterly is always about MFA, MFA, MFA. Everybody, MFA, MFA, MFA. But they're doing it. They just don't know how to do it. And, yeah. and Amira touches on that in a lot of the stuff. It's like, has it? Is it adequate? Is it sufficient? Yeah. I, I have heard horror stories of people failing this requirement because their firewall does not force them to do MFA, which is horrifying to me because there's not a whole lot of firewalls that support MFA. Yeah. Uh, but again, it's pretty wild to think about, you know, on its own, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you can, again, architecture, right? So don't allow connections to your firewall from outside that can log into the firewall. Like right. make sure that that login comes from the inside and then make sure people go through an MFA process before oh, they point. reach it sure. uh, at the very least. Now, there's a couple other ways that you can mess this one up. Uh, first off, out of the blue, we have an assessment objective that says privileged accounts are identified. Where did that come from? Right. Right. <laughs> um, so, but you just need to be able to identify, here's my list of privileged accounts uh, as part of the assessment for this requirement. And then the next thing that people often miss, in fact, I missed it for about six months when I was starting to do CMMC and I had a heart attack in 2021, is you need to have multi-factor for local access to privileged account accounts. What that means 
is if you log into a server locally, keyboard and mouse, you need to have a multi-factor prompt. If you log into a computer locally using a privileged account, you need to have a multi-factor prompt. And that is not standard. Right. You you know, most of our clouds, when we log into them, most of our directories can do multi-factor. This is separate from that. Yep. Yeah, local uh, admin, right? Yep. 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 So uh, if you if you have the ability to log into these devices with a privileged account locally, which basically everyone does, you need to have some sort of a multi-factor authentication. Now, um, one exception, uh, and and not directly to this topic, but just in terms of multi-factor, people really struggle with service accounts, right? You know, I. I want to set up an account to run my backup every every night. I want to do an account to connect these two systems together. And if you turn multi-factor on, it will break. Um, that's understood by assessors. We do understand how computers work, at least most of us do. So <laughs> if you say, look, there's a reason why this account, which is not used by users, you know, and we've got the, the password extremely long and is kept in a safe, uh, there's a reason why this does not have MFA turned on. In general, we're going to go with you as long as it's reasonable. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Those are great tips. All righty, Mira. It's, it's, it's upon us. Everyone's favorite requirement, everyone's favorite control, the number one pick in the CMMC draft here, 31311. CUI encryption, which says employ FIPS validated cryptography when used to protect the confidentiality of CUI. Only one sentence, no ands, only one assessment objective. Number one, most commonly other than satisfied requirement. What is going on? This is a combination okay. of technical as well as misunderstanding. I think um, also the universe often conspiring against people otherwise who would otherwise try to do the right thing. I mean, the FIPS validated crypto thing is it has to be the number one hot button issue inside the requirements of 800-171 in general outside of CMOC itself. But I'm interested in, in your perspectives too. I am pretty sure there are people screaming at their screens right now. Yeah. If we you're listening to this while anything. you're driving, please pull over and pull over, some, yeah. some, get out of your car, do some pushups, right? We got to wait for revision three to come out, but yes, we know, we know, everyone knows no one likes this requirement. Yep. Uh, so I'm, I'm almost afraid to talk to this cause I know there's people <laughs> screaming, but so there, there's a couple aspects to this. I'm, I'm actually going to talk about how to make this work for you. Okay, great. Okay? So this validated cryptography, what that's talking about is you are using a application or a hardware device which has gone through the cryptographic module validation program by NIST and that you actually can find a certificate from NIST saying this thing is good. Mm -hmm. Right now that's the part where people misunderstand this requirement. So they might actually be doing FIPS validated cryptography, or they might have equipment that can do it, but they're not doing that research project to go find the certificate number mm -hmm. 
or download the certificate so that they can show their assessors. Uh, A lot of common, the most common equipment that we use in enterprises, uh, Windows computers, MacBooks, um, you know, most of our firewalls, a lot of that enterprise class stuff can do the FIPS validated cryptography. Yeah. It, it is FIPS validated. It's a, it's a mode in, in Windows. It's, it's, yep. it's a radio button that you select. It, it's available, uh, but people aren't doing the steps to turn it on or they're just simply not doing the research to say, okay, here's my data flow. I use this exact application for CUI, and here's how we have FIPS enabled for that application to protect the confidentiality of it. Now, regarding (laughs) uh, when used to protect the confidentiality of CUI, such an important statement, okay? Protecting the confidentiality of CUI. Mm-hmm. CUI is not passwords. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> we, uh, we just talked with Ryan Bonner last episode about this at length. At length. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Oh, good. Okay. Um, CUI is not keyboards. Uh <laughs> I feel like that's an example. I feel like that's an example that you have rooted in real world experience. <laughs> there, there's people. There are people that 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 think that you need to have a FIPS validated keyboard. I mean, if the um, letters. Uh, to be fair, to be fair, the letters C U N I are right here on my keyboard. And it's wireless. True. And if I type things that maybe C U I, like it's know. transmitted. And, I don't know. You know. I mean, all, all I kidding know. aside, right? This is what happens when you pursue flexibility and open-endedness in requirements statements is it, it, it opens the doors for people who are wanting to do the right thing to over-interpret what's going on. There's nothing there to stop them because you took all those details out of right. the statement. So it's very, it's a, all joking aside, it is completely understandable that that happens. Uh, yes, but, uh, but I'm, I'm trying to spread the word that you don't need to like stress yourself out about those things. It, it really is about CUI and CUI is, is like diagrams. It's, it's text. Mm-hmm. It's, it's information. It's, it's not other things. Right. Um, and then when we get into this word confidentiality, so if you are using cryptography, to protect the confidentiality of CUI, it needs to be FIPS validated. If you are doing other things to protect the confidentiality of CUI, not applies, does not apply this. Okay, so if you have a locked room with an armed guard in front of it, which neither one is cryptography, you don't need FIPS validated. Right. Okay. So there's different ways to protect the confidentiality of CUI, namely physically. Yeah. And this one doesn't even apply in that in that case. Yeah. But when, uh, and that goes when you're a using, lot of when you're using crypto to do it, that crypto has to be FIPS validated. That's the that's yes. the catch. Yep. So yeah. I, I do have a, a kind of like a pylon question to this, Amir. You said that I need a CMVP cert, a cryptographic module validation program cert for my FIPS validated encryption. But when I look at the CMVP, the marketplace, right, the, the, the website that they have that, that demonstrates all these validation certificates, 
I see some that are listed under technologies and then some that are specific modules. So how do I know which one of these is uh, applicable to my environment? Well, that's where you sign into the CUI Center of Excellence. Oh, plug, ding, 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 <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> so if, if, uh, uh, if anybody is wondering what that is, reach out to probably any of us. Uh, and we can we can send you an invite. It's a yep. it's a we'll form. put a link. We'll put a link in the show notes, too, as well, to yep. the the uh, highly regarded Cooley Center of Excellence. Uh, but that's a that's a great place because everybody's already researched mm-hmm. most of the enterprise software and apps out there. And we've already talked about it. So there's a great amount of knowledge there. Um, when I go to the CMVP, I typically search by vendor. And that's how I find most of the certificates. So Microsoft, Apple, Cisco. Um, For the folks that have already purchased firewalls that are not in that list, and you need to use those firewalls, their VPN, to protect the confidentiality of CUI, I am sorry, life sucks for you. This is where it it gets bad, right? Yeah. But you do not need to double encrypt your CUI. Mm-hmm. So if you have your CUI encrypted in transit using a different method, for example, uh, your web browser has established a secure session to a cloud, you don't need to double encrypt it with the VPN. Right. You just mm-hmm. need to you just need to use FIPS validate encryption once. Yep. Uh, so there are ways in many cases to again architect your environment right. uh, so that so that it's good. And get, I'm so, getting back to the idea of risk assessment as a fundamental precursor. The idea that you have thought through this architecture and how your data flows throughout it is a a big, big presupposition before you ever get to you know this requirement. So that's why it feels like you're constantly uncovering and pulling the onion back and back and back. You know, if you didn't think about your architecture and how all that's working beforehand, then you sort of get the bad news whenever you come across this requirement and you have to reverse engineer your architecture to figure out what's going on. The the last thing I want to point out about this, temporary deficiency. That's what I was about to ask. Yep. This is, I, I think we are all waiting to ask you the million dollar question here, Amira. I was like, when yeah. could I cut in so I could, could I ask this question? <laughs> uh, so, and, and bear with me, I actually bring up, you know, actual vendor names, real software. Um, I, I used to be a Windows admin for 20 years, so I know I know Windows. Um, one of the things that, that I struggled with was Windows 10, as an example, super popular, lots of people using it, was last, the last version that was FIPS validated was from like 2018. Mm-hmm. And that is now out of support. Yeah. Like you can't get patches for it anymore, which means that you'd be failing other things. We just talked about flaw remediation. Yep. Yep. So uh, people are like, what do I do? Do I not patch? Do I patch? You know, if, if I patch, it's no longer validated. It, this is impossible. So the DOD has actually on this topic, they have released guidance uh, as part of the DFAR Cyber FAQ, which hopefully Jacob will put a link. Yep, we'll definitely do that. But they say, hey, if it's a if it's a choice between FIPS and patching, do a risk assessment, pick which one is the best option, 
and go for it. Yeah. The answer is patch. It's always patch. <laughs> the answer is patch, patch. In, in general. Yeah. Um, the next thing is they talk about temporary deficiencies. And uh, it, this is fun. I, remember how I mentioned that the government uses Windows, right? Mm -hmm. So yep. they have this problem too, just right. like us. And and not only are they... Are we, are we so different? <laughs> not only are they five years past their validated version, but they would like to use Windows 11, mm -hmm. which is super duper not FIPS validated, <laughs> right? Um, so I actually talked to DOD CIO about this and I said, I'd, I'd, like to use, I'd like to use Windows 11, like, what do I do? And they said, well, that is a prime use of a plan of action. And as long as you have a plan to get it FIPS validated with a date, Mm -hmm. That's considered a temporary exception. That seems like a temporary. very reasonable answer. That seems like something that we can all agree on. FIPS validation is great when it's available and it's consistently mm -hmm. not available. So we shouldn't hold up other good security uh, as a result. Right? That seems right. like a very reasonable interpretation. Now, what I would not recommend trying is taking something that has never been FIPS validated. Mm -hmm. And saying I'm going to use that in the hope that it will become, yeah, and that's and that's exactly you know we posted a clip from Nick Del Rosso's CS2 talk uh, on the YouTube channel a couple of weeks ago, which we can add the link to, where he basically said the exact same thing. Where if it's mm -hmm. obvious that you know you're planning on doing it as soon as it's available, or it once was FIPS and then it's the module's not out yet, that's not your fault. They're not going to ding you for that. But if you are just like, oh, it'll be FIPS validated one day, that's that's a that's a different problem. All right. Are yeah. we, so Jason's got the best boonie hat. I really like you had the full wave going on. You're, you're getting ready to come out of the water like a seal. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I, I, I was set. I had some difficulty throughout the entire segment because like I would shift and then all of a sudden, or I would feel it and it would just start creeping, creeping. And then I'd be like, oh no. Yeah. And yeah. now it's like all dark here. I probably should have did that. for right, like, Yeah, my lighting is not know? designed for hats uh, indoors. Although uh, I have been a big fan of the floppy boonie hat now that uh, all of my hair has disappeared. So uh, that has definitely paid off. Did have one bonus question for you, Amir, if you have time. That came sure. in from the uh, AB Town Hall that was submitted that I thought had your name written all over it. Somebody wrote... Uh, and, you know, didn't get uh, an answer that I think was satisfactory. There's been much conversation and emphasis regarding NFO controls and how to not overlook them. Can you shed some light or guidance on what exactly assessors are looking for? The controls seem so basic. I must be missing something. You have a quick take on... Uh, the enigma of NFO controls from the perspective of an assessor? Um, so first off, the the NFO controls, which are not mentioned in 8 her 171 because NIST assumed that they were so basic mm -hmm. that every organization would be doing them by default. They are split into two general groups. One group is have a bunch of policies and procedures and the other group is be smart about the rest of your systems. Mm -hmm. So technical and non-technical. And when people think NFOs, they go policies and procedures, but it's actually like there's more out there yeah. and there's some really good ones 
especially related to supply chain and procurement. Like make sure that when you buy a new system or you, you attach yourself to a cloud, that that cloud is secure. Yep. Pretty important. Uh, but when we talk about NFOs, everybody's thinking policies and procedures. And that's, that's fine. Let's talk about policies and procedures. Uh, so one analogy is there might be a requirement, you need to go to the gym every day. And the NFO would be, I don't you know. need to know I, how to I don't drive think that a car. One got to, I don't think that one's on my list. I, I have to double check. I might have, <laughs> I might have dropped one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's a, it's, yeah, they are super basic, but generally we don't see companies being successful at doing cybersecurity if they do not have policies and procedures. Right. Uh, so when when an assessor is assessing you for, for CMMC, there's a very few assessment objectives that actually specifically call out, you have a policy for this, you have a procedure for this. There's a few. Uh, like publication review, mm -hmm. there's there's one that specifically calls it out, but most of them don't. They just say you will do vuln scans, you will do risk mm -hmm. assessments, right? The policy is what supports performing the actual activity that's required, right? And it it makes it occur when you have turnover inside your company, yep. you're bringing yep. on a new person, or if somebody is going, I'm too busy. You can be like, whoa, 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 actually, our policy says this is pretty important. Uh, so we, it, it comes down to, yeah, you don't need to have a set of policies and procedures, especially you don't need to have the, the super cybersecurity speaky ones, you know, that just regurgitate the requirements that right. I, I, I haven't found much value from those. But if you don't have something you're probably not going to be successful with the other requirements. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, we'll link over as well to if, if people have no idea, we you know what a shell of a policy uh, needs to look like the dash one controls in each of the uh, uh, control families in 853 are the exact same outline. If you look in 853 a right. And so the sort of list of things there, so we'll link to that. That way uh, people can check it out. And it forms a sort of rudimentary sort of rough outline of what a decent policy should cover. Uh, and so as far as the policy NFO controls specifically, if people are looking for an example of what someone might be looking for, uh, then we, you can always go check those ones out in 853A to get an idea of what they're looking for. If it's one of the other NFO controls, those are all sort of uh, a little bit different on a case by case basis. But yeah, those are definitely interesting. I guess just to wrap up here, Amira, you know, we talked about NFO controls. We talked about top 10 other than satisfied, including FIPS validation. 171 Rev 3, the initial draft is supposed to be upon us very soon, allegedly. Uh, what are you hoping to see? What would you like to see? What, you know, what, what sort of things do you think are unrealistic to hope for? You know, what, what's your read on the situation here? There are two things I am hoping to see. Okay. Um, one I know is near and dear to your heart, Jacob, which is revert back to the 853 controls. Stop, stop mixing stuff up. Stop mushing multiple things together. Stop breaking them into, you know, eight different assessment objectives that we were not expecting. 
If we're going to all have to cross-reference back to 853 to figure out what they meant, then you might as well have just put the 853 language in there to begin with. Yep. 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 So that's that's one that I think would make a huge improvement. Uh, the the one that I actually put in a comment on is 3.1.20, which talks about mm -hmm. controlling, limiting, and verifying external systems and the use of external systems. Mm -hmm. And that is the one that I spend the most time on and it makes me crazy because I don't think anyone understands what it's actually asking for. Uh, so the word verify, it, it doesn't appear in, in the requirement anywhere, right? Except for the, the actual control statement and, and the, the assessment objectives that say verify the external systems, verify the use of external systems. Mm -hmm. That word verify means make sure that that thing is as secure as it needs to be to be connected to your network. Right. Don't don't connect to an external system that is going to immediately cause a compromise of your system. Right? Don't don't use an external system for CUI if they're not going to protect it at least as well as you're protecting it. Makes sense. And that's so simple, right? So basic. Yeah. It almost yeah. could be an NFO. Uh, but nobody realizes that that verify word means check the security, make sure it's up to yep. snuff. Yep. So instead, instead, since nobody knows that that actually is a requirement in 853, I'm sorry, 8171, we have, you need to use a FedRAMP cloud. Oh, you yeah. need to have a CMMC level two certification if you use a SIM for security. Yep. Right. Yeah, we've got this. For, we've got this lumping on of additional requirements to try and solve this thing that is already solved, but nobody realizes it's there. Yep. I I, I agree one hundred percent. Yeah. I I one hundred percent agree, and I I anticipate that there will definitely be a, a that they will revisit their language used for external services and supply chain requirements for, for multiple reasons, but I'm really hoping that that'll be in there as well. So I think those are both good perspectives. Amira, thank you for being so generous with your time and your insight and your wisdom. How can people follow you? Where can they find you? How can they get in contact with you? We'll link everything below as well. Um, I'm the president of Curie Solutions. Uh, which is an authorized C3 PIO. So we've got stuff on our website at curie.com. I blog at cmmcaudit.org, which is a not paywalled. You don't have to register. You don't have to give your email address, tons of free information. Um, and I'm actually in the process of revamping it for 2023, putting out a bunch of new videos and new content there. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, Amira Armand. I, I think I'm the only Amira Armand. <laughs> and uh, so, and then also I, I am active on that Kui Center of Excellence. So if, if you post on there, there's a good chance I'll, I'll be responding to you. Great. Awesome. Well, Amira, thank you so much. We'll put links to all that information. Uh, this was awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amira. Another uh, AB Town Hall, another extended Q&A session. So there were quite a few comments and questions that were submitted during the Q&A that jumped out to us as interesting. So we'll dive right into them. Uh, the first one was, how can, acronym quiz everybody, how can OSCs 
get into JSVAs. How can organizations seeking certification under CMMC get into joint surveillance voluntary assessments? Uh, and so Matt Travis kind of went through the uh, the list of steps there, which you know you want to you want to jump into, Jason. Yeah, so we kind of covered this last month also because one of the topics that we covered was do JSVAs cost money, right? Mm-hmm. And we detailed some of the process there where you would. The answer is yes. Uh, yeah, yes, they do yeah. cost money because the process is contacting an authorized C3PAO, and they listed the 38 that are now authorized and ready to 38. go. 38, 38 is. That's getting up there. That's getting up we there were, towards a lot. So we're about one year removed from the cap being released. Mm-hmm. And when the cap was released, there was 11. Wow. So 27 wow, in a that. year. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. I looked back at the notes because like, obviously yeah. that was a huge monumental moment, you know, and that's just a little under a year ago. Um, but your process, like, so say that you're an organization, you're like, I'm ready for the CMMC thing. And uh, I want to go through the joint surveillance voluntary assessment, which is the only way right now that I can assess my, you know, CMMC standing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you would contact a, a C3PAO, you would find one in the marketplace, one of the ones that's authorized. And then from there, the C3PAO talks to the AB and communicates your interest in the program. The AB talks to DIPCAC and then DIPCAC contacts the OSC. So it's you tell a friend and then they tell a friend and then they tell a friend and then that friend decides whether or not they want to meet you. Delightful. Okay. So it's, it's like a match made in heaven, right? Yeah. I love um, the, I love that you can have an entire sentence of acronyms. OSC talks to C3PAO, C3PAO talks to AB, AB talks to DIBCAC, DIBCAC talks to OSC and the circle of acronyms is complete. Yeah. Acronyms are par for they're, the course when it comes they're to a way of life in, yeah, this, yeah. in this industry. <laughs> DHS talks to DOD, it talks to the FBI, that talks to yeah. CIA, like, you know, we just go right. down the list, right? So then uh, let's say that DIPCAC picks the OSC. What happens from there is that the OSC pays the C3PAO to sit in on this joint surveillance voluntary assessment and conduct it with mm-hmm. oversight from DIPCAC. Okay. Um, and then so a couple of things that we don't know about this, Jacob, right, or what? Uh, we don't know how much they cost, uh, right. you know, in general or on average. Uh, so we, you know, we don't know what's going on with that. You know, we've heard it in the neighborhood of 30 to 50 K, but you also hear rumors from, you know, over a year ago when people were saying that assessments were going to cost six figures. I haven't heard that recently, but mm-hmm. we don't have the data on, on what those run. So now what affects that price, Jacob? Um, well, uh, <laughs> the famous, it depends Right. Right. Uh, Primarily, I think the main answer that everybody gives is the complexity and size of your environment. Right. Okay. So if you're, you know, a a very complex, highly distributed, uh, you know, a lot of one off technologies or edge case scenarios, probably going to be pricier than a smaller, more vanilla deployment organization. But I think that'll be highly variable depending on the types of technologies and architectures that people have gone with. And do you think that the level and quality of your documentation and the assurance claims that you've built to defend your implementations would affect that sp- that price? Like, do you think that a more squared away organization would have a quicker or a longer assessment? Quicker and cheaper. Yeah. Yep. I mean, just even just from the perspective of time, right? 
the faster that you can facilitate the assessment through preparation and documentation and everything that you need to do, front-loading all the information, making it easy, as easy as possible, mm -hmm. um, and just sort of front-loading as much assurance on the assessor as you possibly can, the faster it will go, the less time it will take, the less money it will cost. So, yep. uh, yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, some of the other details that they had uh, when they were talking about getting into these joint surveillance assessments so far, they've done about 15 joint surveillance assessments. There's more currently ongoing. Mm -hmm. There's apparently 20 to 30 companies that are in the queue to get their joint surveillance assessment. So it's booked out a couple months. Uh, and in total, they've had about 90 companies apply for the program. So that was an interesting not, number to me that, that yeah, 90 I mean, not a, jumped at it. Yeah. Not a ton of companies that are, that are applying, but also not a, it, it's a non-zero number, right? Our favorite. Yeah. Uh, however, you know, if you're planning on getting in there, uh, you know, you probably want to get in line because uh, much like we've talked about with w the issue that will happen when CMMC, uh, you know, is available, mm -hmm. there will be a bunch of people who get stuck waiting in line. Right. So right. Uh, there's currently 20 or 30 when CMMC happens, you probably add some extra zeros to the numbers of companies that are in the queue waiting in line. But, you know, they are available. That's the process for uh, if you're interested, uh, how you reach out to your C3PO and then eventually DibCAC will get in touch with you for your joint surveillance voluntary assessment. And then so one of the topics that we've talked about um, about the joint surveillance voluntary assessments is that they're against the current CMMC requirements. Mm -hmm. And so we talked about, and the next question is, will NIST SP 800-171 revision three cause updates to CMMC? Yes. So we talked about the benefits of doing the JSVA now would be that yep. you are against Rev2 and that you've yep. probably already started approaching those implementations. So yep. yeah, it's going to change. How so? Yeah, well, so... CMMC is the program that verifies that you have implemented 800-171 and your DFARS 7012 <clears throat> contract clause tells you that you need to implement whatever the current version of 800-171 is at the time of your contract solicitation. So just like we're on revision two of 800-171, we've done this twice before. When they update 800-171, you are responsible for implementing that current version. When you mm -hmm. go to get your CMMC certification, you will be assessed against whatever that current version is. So if you get a joint surveillance assessment, now you are getting assessed against 800-171 revision two. Assuming that everything goes through with DOD's intent in rulemaking and your joint surveillance assessment uh, grandfathers you into a CMMC certification, and then you don't have to get certified for several years after that, you will not have to worry about whatever the Delta is above 171 R2 mm -hmm. with the upcoming 171 revision three for however many years. So you're getting in ahead of time. You don't have to worry about the constraint while waiting in line. And we don't know how many new controls there will be in 171 uh, Rev 3, but there will certainly be some number of them. And it's just that many more things that you don't have to worry about or spend money worrying or about. time or right? time. Or, right. Yeah, and so it's plan accordingly. Yeah, definitely an advantage of getting to get assessed against Rev 2 rather than Rev 3. This is what we've talked about previously in the two rulemaking scenarios that we could end up with. 
if we end up with an interim final rule before 800-171-R3 is published, then that means that a lot of people who are early adopters and at the front of the line will get assessed against Rev2, and that by the time everything catches up to Rev3, the people stuck waiting in line will be assessed against a larger, more expensive, and time-consuming standard. If we get a proposed rule, which would have uh, basically a year-long gap where the DOD has to respond to public comments, that gives plenty of time for all of the CMMC documentation and assessment guide to get caught up with 800-171 Rev3, which means everyone would get assessed against the new, larger, more expensive, and time-consuming standard. So the sooner you can go is usually the better because the standards never get smaller. They only ever get bigger over time. Dude, so listen, don't kill me. Okay. Did you see, did, were you looking on screen? Did you see the light bulb go off real quick? I saw a light bulb go off, but I wasn't sure what I said that caused the light bulb to go off. I, I just totally went straight conspiracy theory mode. And this is only <laughs> speculation, okay? Only okay. speculation. Let me know how this makes you feel. Sure. We know, we know that the CMMC rule is not sent, submitted to OMB yet, right? Yep, it's, not it's yet. Not been submitted As of the OMB. time of this recording on May 1st, it is not submitted to OMB for regulatory. And review. what kind of updates or what kind of what kind of timeline is Rev3 on right now? Do you think? Uh, as of the time of this recording, based off of statements from NIST and Ron Ross, we would expect to see 800-171's initial public draft sometime in the month of May because they said they were planning on publishing by late spring, I would assume that they are calling June summertime, right? A lot of people would call that summertime. So I would imagine that it'll be out before June, which would be sometime this month as of the time of this recording. And we know that from John Sherman's testimony that no stones being left on turn, they're mm -hmm. measuring twice, cutting once. Mm -hmm. What if our delay in submission is for basically being able to address the revision of 8-171-171 could be covered in, in the yeah. rule, right? I mean, so they're like, be. because what would have to happen if they needed to change language? They would have to go through what process again? Yeah, they have to go through rulemaking again. Yeah. So, right, I mean, which would be this whole scenario, right. right, happening over again. Am I Am I just, should I go talk well, to somebody I don't know. about I, I, I think that's probably not the single reason, but it's certainly helpful if the rule gets thrown over the fence to OMB after all of the possible stones have been unturned, right? They've, they're putting right. out the DIB CS expansion to DIB CS programs and services to DIB companies mm -hmm. as a proposed rule for a mm -hmm. long time. When they were really going to jam that CMMC rule out there, they were talking about expanding access to DIB CS tools and services. Mm -hmm. But if they got an interim final rule for CMMC, and a proposed rule for the tools and services, then you would be out of sequence because you'd be okay. assessing people against requirements for which you have not made tools and services available to facilitate. By okay. having that rule for DIBCS come out before the CMMC rule, they get to say, we expanded access to this program of tools and services to make it easier on the DIB to meet their requirements. Sure, it doesn't, it doesn't meet all the requirements, Right. You know, it, it only helps with certain well, parts of some They're, they're saying that we're throwing a life vest out there, right? Right. We're not, it's not nothing, right? And it's yeah. happening before the rule, which makes the story to Congress and in responding to public comments much simpler. So mm -hmm. if you wait until after the publication of 171 Rev 3, then, you know, you have a better idea of what's coming around the corner. 
ultimately the CMMC rule isn't 100% dependent on it because the thing that causes companies to have to implement the new revision is DFAR 7012, not right. DFAR 7021. But yeah, I mean, it's certainly helpful if the rule gets submitted after we get, we all get an idea of what's going to be in 171 um, R3. But yeah, to answer the question, will NIST SP 800 R3 cause updates to CMMC? It necessarily will because CMMC is a program that assesses 171. So as 171 is revised, so is CMMC revised in lockstep, especially now that under CMMC 2.0, they are directly aligned with each other. Uh, there's no DOD unique tailoring via the Delta 20 or the Delta however many controls independent of revisions to 800-171. And you know, on this same thread, I submitted a question during the town hall and I uh, felt like I did not get a good answer. So we're going to talk about it here. My question was, how long will it take? And this is a little bit of a trick question. I, I, I mm -hmm. kind of set them up a little bit. My question was, how long will it take the AB to release an updated CMMC level two assessment guide after NIST SP 800-171 revision three is published, right? So the CMMC level two assessment guide is basically a word for word carbon copy of 800-171A with a little bit of additional information thrown in there for good measure. Uh, sure. So if they publish 800-171 revision three, but we don't get 800-171A uh, revision three to come along with it, then it would be a while before we got the updated CMMC assessment guide, right? Now, I think what their answer probably is, is just like with the cap after rulemaking, it'll probably take a month or two after the publication of the big thing, 171 rulemaking, 171A, 172, 172A, so on and so forth, for them to update the corresponding CMMC document, right? Okay. Now, my tip to everybody is when 171 Rev 3 comes out and there's more stuff in it, but we don't have the updated revision to 171A, we don't have to wait for 171A uh, to be revised to know what's going on because we can always go back to 853A in mm -hmm. the source material and see what the master list of all assessment objectives are for those controls. And 171A will always be some subset of those. So for those that are very eager to get started and get a feel of the ballpark of what the impact of 171 Rev 3 will be, you can always go look at 853A. That was kind of the trick, right? Because they can't really publish the updated level two assessment guide until the new version of 171A is published. But I just wanted to get them to say, It'll take a month or two, probably like sure. the cap. I think that's probably going to be um, their answer. So, okay. So the next question was, does CMMC provide a list of evidence artifacts requested for CMMC and DIBCAC high joint assessments to submit to C3PAO assessment organizations and DOD assessors? So is there a list mm -hmm. of evidence artifacts that they are going to request from you when you're doing these CMMC joint surveillance voluntary assessments. Uh, I think we both had an idea that came to mind first. The first one that jumped to my mind that we'll link to in the show notes is on the DCMA DIBCAC website. They have a list, uh, several documents that they use when they contact you for your assessment. Mm -hmm. Sort of 
what the uh, what the schedule is going to look like, what they're going to look at first, who they want to talk to, the types of things that they will be looking for, a sort of rudimentary list of of artifacts and uh, documents that they're going to be interested in, in looking at are contained in those uh, in that list. And so we'll link to that for people to check out. And then sure. you thought of a different one, right? Well, yeah. So no, on that, um, in those resources on that website, there is actual downloadable resources that you can pull, right? And one of them is the C3PAO pre-assessment planning documentation yeah, that's right. package. And so that one, the, the stuff that's inside of that um, it is kind of like a, a skeleton as to where your assessment's going to go and some of the assessment considerations, some of the things that they would look for or request from you. Um, it's not a detailed list that you're going to need these 377 things, right? It's going to yeah. be like, this is the kind of stuff that you would be looking for uh, to prove that the implementation has taken place. Right, right. Gotcha. Yeah. And then the sort of roundabout answer, which is probably not exactly what this person was looking for, is it is not a exhaustive, specified uh, exact list, but you can always look at 800-171-A and mm -hmm. under the um, assessment methods. So you've got the control, the assessment objectives, then you have the assessment methods, which are examine, interview, and test. Then there is a list of objects after each one of those, like, for example, uh, this type of policy or this type of uh, mechanism, right? Or this type of role and responsibility. We would interview this person. We would examine this type of document. We would test this type of mechanism. You can look at those. Their NIST is very careful to say that this is not an exhaustive list. It's just a set of examples. But if you're looking for things to complement those resources that we were going to link over from the C3PAO pre-assessment planning or DCMA DIBCACS documentation, uh, to get an idea of the things that you would look at to satisfy those assessment objective questions. You can always look at the objects under assessment methods in 800-171-A to get an idea of the types of stuff to look at. Okay. And uh, more 800-171-A questions, our favorite. Someone asked, is NIST SP-800-171-A the implementation guidance for CMMC controls, and this was a this was a bit of a uh, of a spicy question here, because officially the government does not provide implementation guidance. Right, it is their mm -hmm. policy, as well as the AB's policy, that they do not provide specific implementation details or guidance for liability reasons, for the fact that there are too many variables that exist in the ecosystem for them to be able to provide comprehensive guidance. And it would be this sort of unachievable uh, burden of trying to come up with detailed guidance for everything everywhere all the time. Um, so yeah, so they don't publish specific implementation guidance. And to that end, uh, 800-171A is about as close as you're going to get as far as a description of what an implementation ought to be able to do, right? Like mm -hmm. as close to a description of what a verification of an implementation would sound like, you can find that either in 800-171-A or you can find it in the CMMC assessment guide. The CMMC assessment guide is very useful because it also contains ad additional examples that are not in 800-171-A. Now they're pretty vague, uh, they're not all that specific, but they are useful uh, for sort of getting an idea of what's talking, 
of what they're talking about. But when you read 171A, when you read the assessment guide from CMMC, when you read 853, that's about as specific as we're ever going to get uh, from from the government kind of as a general policy. Yeah, um, it's there's too many intricacies that exist, especially with sizes of businesses and technology capabilities, technology like the vendors being used and how they're being leveraged right. for, for the government just to come out and be like, this is how you do it, right? Do it this, so way, the best, do it this way. Yeah. The best way that they can do is like you get a, you just bought a brand new set of Legos and you see what the picture is supposed to be on the outside. And then you kind of get a step-by-step from 171A or the assessment guidance, right? The saying that these are the things that need to be put together. These are the, the particular ways that you can put them together. And these are the things that will be looked for once you put them together. Right. And then it's right. your job to either have the comprehension and knowledge to interpret that and, and turn that into a cybersecurity program or to find a professional that's capable of doing that, you know, for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, and, and, you know, the thing to keep in mind, too, is you sort of see these two different sentiments whenever you're looking at the questions that are submitted, public comments that are submitted over time is half, about half of them will say, give us detailed implementation guidance. Tell us exactly mm-hmm. what you want us to do. Please just make it simpler for everybody and tell me what you want me to do. And then in the other half of the comments and uh, inputs that the government gets, they say, do not under any circumstances give prescriptive requirements. You are being too prescriptive. Prescriptive requirements are the enemy of flexibility. They are Mm -hmm. the enemy of security. They are outdated by the time you write them. Only write outcome-based, goal-oriented, what do you want to see at the end of the process and we will figure out how we're going to get there. Uh, sure. Do not give us specific implementation. And that crowd is much, much louder than the group of people who want specific implementation guidance, even if the government were willing and able to provide that specific implementation guidance. So remember, right, uh, there are many voices in the ecosystem that are providing feedback about what ought to be put out and published. And generally the trend, you can see this in the development and change of 853 over the last 20 years. The general trend has been catalogs always get bigger. Catalogs of controls always get less and less specific over time, primarily for that reason, right? So sure. uh, not not a not a fun answer, but that's, that's about as good as it's probably gonna get. So. Sure. Okay, uh, another question that came up was, since current regulations say we must comply with the latest version of 800-171 and revision three is scheduled to come out very soon, will we be forced to comply with revision three once rulemaking is complete? Yes, you will. Yes, you will. For the reasons why we talked about earlier and for reasons why we've talked about in previous episodes, DFAR 7012 tells you, you need to implement the most current version of 800-171 at the time of your solicitation. And so when 800-171 revision three uh, goes final, which uh, here now in May, June, probably at the latest, we're going to get what's known as the initial public draft. Sometimes there's a second public draft, not always, not always. Uh, We'll get the final version, like the actual version that is the final revision published and that will be 
<clears throat> the version of 171 uh, until they revise it again in the future. I would estimate that we're going to get the initial public draft here May, June. We'll probably end up with the final revision end of 2023 at the latest Q1 2024. So like we said, if we're going to get a proposed rule and and CMMC is not effective and starting to go into contracts and C3 PAOs can, you know, get hired by OSCs to get their certification until later in 2024, summer of 2024, then yes, you will have to have implemented the 800-171 revision delta above the current 800-171 revision two, CMMC is just showing up and assessing you against whatever's current, right? So yeah, you will 100% be required to implement that revision of 171. Just like right now, if CMMC were to go into effect today, you would be assessed against 800-171 revision two, not 800-171 revision one, not the original 800 pre-revision from 2015 or 2016, right? It's exactly now, the same. Exactly. We same know the conversations that this is going to spurn, right? Okay, so if I'm going to eventually going to have to, when this goes final, comply with the requirements of revision three, what what's the benefit in me doing a, a joint surveillance voluntary assessment now, which would be based against revision two, right? Yeah. So so yeah, what we yeah. what we know this means is no. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, to, you know, to keep in mind, right, the sort of the universe of possible changes that we could have here. Yep. The the minimum baseline for protecting CUI in a federal system is a list of 261 controls. Mm -hmm. When that CUI shows up in non-federal systems, the only way that you were able to go from 261 to 110 was a few of them are 100% not applicable outside of the federal government, but only about a dozen and a half. The rest of them are taken out of 800-171 through a series of assumptions. And over the last five or six years, it has been shown to NIST and the government repeatedly that those assumptions are incorrect. And so the bucket of possible controls that they can pull from and put back into that baseline is upwards of 50, 60, 70 controls. Now, I don't personally think that they're going to do that much, but the possibility exists. The idea that we're going to get a dozen new controls is 100% uh, on uh, in the realm of possibility. So sure. when you when you talk about why would I bother getting a joint surveillance assessment against Rev2, like, do you want to do a dozen fewer controls? Do you yeah. want to do 20 fewer controls? Two fewer controls? any number of fewer controls now rather than later. I mean, it, you know, it makes sense. If you've already committed the, the resources and the time um, to meet the level two requirements, and we know we're, we're still talking about intent here, right? So the yep. overall intent is you go through a JSVA, you get the level two. When CMMC goes live, you have the level two at then. You should pursue that level two JSVA just on the premise that it may possibly turn into that because then it allows you to plan forward. We talked about this, right? Now you can dedicate the time and the financial resources that may come along with that over the next couple of years, you know, up until you have to get your next assessment, so. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it just, the sequencing, it just makes things a lot smoother if you're able to yep. get in and do it, do it, do it early. Um, but yeah, since, since the regulations say, comply with the latest version, the regulations being DFAR 7012, 
and the revision of 171 is coming out before CMMC assessments will be available, then mm -hmm. yeah, by the time CMMC assessments are available, you will be assessed against revision three of 800-171, unless you get in with JSVA now, unless we happen to get an interim final rule and a bunch of people at the front of the line get to squeak through before 171 uh, final revision three uh, is, is in black and white. But we're, sure. we should get an idea of what those changes will be here in, you know, a, a month at, at the most. Okay. Uh, FedRAMP moderate equivalency questions are always a spicy meatball every month. And we had one Fips this month. Fed ramp in one episode. Yeah, this is uh yeah, it's a, uh, it's a bunch. And, and the question basically was fed ramp, moderate equivalency question mark. <laughs> and the standard boilerplate answer that we've heard multiple times is fed ramp, moderate equivalency is a known issue, right? The DOD mm -hmm. knows that this is a problem. It was, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. And back in 2015, the idea that you were going to have an equivalent uh, to FedRAMP moderate seemed like a very kind thing for the DOD to do for the DIB because mm -hmm. there were like three things that were FedRAMP certified and you couldn't get them to answer the phone if you weren't a giant corporation. So okay. that has turned out to not exactly play out the way that DOD anticipated. The word equivalent is very, very confusing and it needs clarification. And everyone has told us, Stacey Bostjanic, the AB Town Hall, anybody who's anybody has said that it will be addressed in the CMMC rulemaking. Now, interesting side note here, we got to do our own, this is our own segment of rumor control, everybody. Pro Producer Dustin, let's get some air horns going in the background. Our own rumor <laughs> control of people posting uh, comments in the AB Q&A section with bad information, with bad information. So somebody later on in the AB Town Hall said, just FYI, according to, we won't mention the website with the blog post, DOD did announce ISO 27001 reciprocity in the same announcement uh, with FedRAMP moderate reciprocity. Say and, what? And uh, just so everybody knows, listening to this, that is not true. Uh, we reached out to the company that had that information in their blog post. They have since redacted that information and corrected it. Oh. So props to them. Um, but yes, if you were looking through the AB Town Hall Q&A and you saw that, that is not true information based off of any publicly available information that anybody has access to. When you are reading blogs, uh, make sure you double check where you're getting your information from, because if it sounds too good to be true, until the rule comes out, it probably is, right? We do not know what the status is on 27,001 reciprocity. We do not know what the status is on FedRAMP moderate reciprocity, equivalency, or any of those fun issues. I was thinking to myself, like, how do we miss that? I can't believe that something that monumental happened. And, and I, 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 as soon as I saw it in the question, I was like, there's no way. There's no, I have no idea what this person's talking about. So I went to the website and I was like, this is just a random blog. Right. You know, maybe they're right. Reached out to the blog authors and I was like, what are you talking about? And they went, whoops, our bad. But if you watch the recording or if you happen to see the questions, just so you know, that has not been officially announced. That is not information. Fake news, air horns, rumor control. That is not true. So you're, you're uh, like yes. a rumor vigilante. Like you, you don't 
You know what I, I mean? Like, the first time, I think it was the first time. It wasn't a question. It was an FYI posted in the Q&A section. So creative right. use of the Q&A section because the chat is never turned on. But let's all, you know, let's all be careful with what we put out there because, um, you know, that information is not official yet. Hopefully it is, but we don't know, right? We don't know. We, we've talked about this previously. ISO 27001 reciprocity with CMMC is a problem because 800-171 is not reciprocal with ISO 27001. There are many, many gaps that ISO mm -hmm. 27001 does not cover. So naturally, if you're certified against 27001, it wouldn't count as a one-for-one -one equivalency uh, mm -hmm. reciprocal relationship with a CMMC certification because you didn't do all the controls, right? So we don't know what they're going to say. But they're probably going to say FedRAMP moderate equivalency, yes. ISO 27001 equivalency, no. Uh, but we have to wait and see for the rulemaking. So everybody stay frosty out there. Keep your head on a swivel when it comes to um, errant blog posts and their information. There was uh, one question that, that you know came across the Q&A during the town hall that I think you would particularly like to, uh, to touch on, which is... Uh, What's the difference between uh, the CMMC level two assessment guide and the cap and the CMMC cap? It's a really good question, honestly. And yep. it was a, it's a, it's a, it's sort of a fundamental evergreen question that I'm, uh, I'm surprised we hadn't covered yet. I haven't seen it get brought up in the town hall Q and A. So the CMMC level two assessment guide is essentially the DOD's CMMC program wrapper around 800-171A, the right. verification procedures for 800-171 security requirements. Mm -hmm. The CMMC cap, the CMMC assessment process guide, the cap, is the document that contains the overall approach to the steps and phases of an assessment. So the actual questions that need to be asked to verify whether a requirement is implemented properly, uh, operating according to management intent, producing the desired outcomes, how you verify that a requirement is implemented is mm -hmm. the set of assessment objectives in 171A, also known as the CMMC uh, Level 2 Assessment Guide. How you schedule an assessment, who's responsible, roles and responsibilities. Uh, what do we do if we find um, uh, controls that are not implemented? How do we schedule follow-ups? Uh, how do you resolve how disagreements? How do you resolve disagreements? Uh, when, when do we go through our pre-assessment review? to see if there's assessment feasibility. Uh, how long do you have for, you know, all of the other stuff around how right. the assessment will actually run is what is contained in the CMMC assessment process guide, the CMMC cap. And so one way of just very broadly uh, characterizing the material that you will sometimes see on the CCP exam is two of the big buckets that they talk about are uh, basically questions on uh, assessment objectives from the uh, requirements at CMMC level one and the steps and phases of the cap, right? What happens sure. in what order, who's responsible for what, how do you coordinate, so on and so forth. So yeah, level two assessment guide and cap uh, are tightly interdependent, but um, the level two assessment guide applies to the verification of the controls. The cap is everything around that. So another one of the questions that we got in the town hall um, revolved around CMMC level two requirements and other clauses like FAR clauses. So the question is, is there a discussion to include CMMC level requirements and FAR clauses as well? 
Yeah. So this is, I don't want to be pedantic here, but this is a very, it's an interesting way that they phrase the question. So CMMC is a program that assesses other requirements. And those other requirements are typically as a result of other contract clauses. So CMMC level one is verifying that you have implemented the 17 requirements in the FAR clause 52.204.21. CMMC level two is verifying that you have implemented the requirements in NIST SP 800.171, which you have been directed to implement as a result of the DFARS clause 70.12, right? Sure. And so implementing or including CMMC level requirements in FAR clauses is a little bit mixed up because CMMC level one requirements are the result of a FAR clause, right? So right. that's already right. part of it. Uh, now here's the, here's the, the catch is 800-171 will eventually be part of a government wide FAR clause. It is the right. third uh, piece of the three part plan to fully implement the CUI executive order from 2010, something we've talked about on other episodes. And so that FAR clause has to go through rulemaking. It already went up to OMB last summer, got mm -hmm. sent back, and then they're changing it again. If you imagine how complex and long, you know, how long the process is for DOD to issue a rule that only affects the DOD, uh, now mm -hmm. imagine that every single federal agency has to do the same thing with the same requirements and get on the same page. And it's no wonder why it's taken like years uh, for them to start to get close to that rule coming together. Now at CS2, and we'll link to the clip, Stacy said, hey, the discussions of the FAR CUI rule that make everybody, not just the DIB, implement 800-171 are rolling along and, you know, very productive. DOD specifically has said they are not pushing CMMC as a verification mechanism for 800-171 in that FAR rule. If other agencies decide that they want to verify whether their contractors have implemented 800-171, which they should. And as we have talked about on previous episodes, we have found out some of them are planning on doing that, like the National Nuclear Security Agency. Mm -hmm. um, then yes, they could use CMMC, but it doesn't have to be part of the FAR clause from the DOD's perspective. Agencies get very nervous whenever uh, you start saying that we're going to come verify requirements of their suppliers. And so DOD is just not going to die on that hill. So, um, you know, will CMMC level requirements be in FAR clause as well? Level one requirements are because they are CMMC is verifying the FAR 52.204.21. Level yep. two requirements will be because they will be in a FAR CUI rule. However, the CMMC program won't be, that will be up to the agencies to decide how or if they will verify implementation. Knowing what we know, those agencies that want to verify implementation will likely use CMMC, uh, but it won't be part of the FAR rule itself, as far as we know. So for the next question, let's turn the difficulty level up on the game from easy to maybe medium. We're not going okay. to full on hardcore, okay? Um, and so that first question pertained to the government's contracts with contractors, and that's other government agencies, contractors with contractors. Now yes. let's talk about government contracts with other government agencies. Okay. Where another government agency is a contractor for a federal government entity. Okay. So the question was, and I think this is a really good question. 
Will CMMC be required for federal agencies who are contracted by other federal agencies? You want me to go all the way through or do you want to answer? Yeah, sure. Yeah, with there's, yeah. All right. If not, is there some way of aligning CMMC with other potential requirements for federal agencies specifically? Yeah. So this is a really, really interesting and a very good question. But like we talked about beforehand, probably outside of what the AB is comfortable sure. or willing to, to answer for many reasons sure. on the town hall. So I know I say this all the time. CMMC is a program that verifies the implementation of 171. 171 is a set of requirements for a situation where federal information is showing up in a non-federal environment, right? Sure. If federal information is inside of a federal environment, then 853 controls apply. The selection and tailoring and implementation and assessment and authorization and continuous monitoring of those controls are part of the risk management framework, the ATO authority to operate process that you may have heard of from federal specific spaces. When two agencies get together and love each other very much, and they're going to share information like CUI or who knows what, they do not use 800 to protect those controls. They use the 853 moderate baseline. And whether they have implemented and verified that implementation is judged by the nature of their ATO decision. And it is up to the heads of those agencies or whoever that authority is delegated to, to negotiate reciprocity, our favorite word, between those two independent ATOs. This is a whole process that is well-established and covered in a document called NIST SP 837, which governs the risk management framework. If you talk to any federal security weenies, they will tell you all about this all day long. We'll link to it if you want to read it. It's very interesting. Um, but yes, so federal agency to federal agency, not a CMMC problem because it's not a 171 problem. It's a 53 problem, which is an RMF problem, an ATO problem itself. Um, yep. So yeah, that's, I thought it was a very, very interesting question and a novel one that we hadn't heard before, but that's, that's basically how those two worlds will work. Sometimes yep. you'll hear very, we have a good friend that says this all the time, some very overzealous uh, people who have been in the federal space for a long time that will say, well, we do RMF on the federal side. Why don't we just do RMF on the non-federal side? And so as a result, um, that would be way too heavy duty for what's going on. This was something that DOD had talked about back in 2018 at a CUI day event, which we can link to. Um, basically, you know, the output of the RMF process and whittling down uh, the 53 moderate baseline to 171 is what we ended up with. So we're sort of doing RMF by another name, but yeah, agency to agency is a separate program, separate problem. The much larger catalog of 853 controls the way that the catalog was originally designed, CMMC is verifying a strange derivative of that RMF 853 world. So yeah, very interesting question. I thought it was, I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, so that, I mean, it's the truth. It, it doesn't need CMMC because it already has its much more right. thorough in-depth process. Yep, absolutely. So, okay, so those were the AB town hall questions. Uh, we had YouTube, some YouTube viewer questions come in, which we always love. Uh, to see. We read all of them. So if you've got thoughts, comments, concerns, criticisms, uh, or suggestions, leave them in the comments. You can put them on the clips. You can put them on the full episodes. 
uh, we'll definitely see them and respond to them uh, on air uh, if we if we can. So Chris Ballard asks, do you know whether election systems, specifically the software on election systems, are considered CUI and therefore fall under CMMC? So again, right, there's a lot of overlapping circles of programs and initiatives and data types. And sometimes when the questions are formulated, it kind of, it kind of mixes them up. But I see where Chris is going here with this question. And it's a really, mm -hmm. really good one. So the best answer is election system software is not categorized as CUI. Election infrastructure is considered to be critical infrastructure, specifically it is considered to be a subsector of the government facilities critical infrastructure sector. So we'll link to mm -hmm. the list of CISA critical infrastructure sectors, and you can read about how the election system infrastructure is a subpart of government facilities critical infrastructure sector. But being a critical infrastructure sector does not mean that everything you deal with itself is CUI. Or as in the case of like the water sector, and pipeline and aviation and rail, you might not even have cybersecurity requirements on the books, right? I mean, it varies a lot between critical infrastructure sectors. So we, right, when we remember that CMMC is a DOD assessment program and it only pertains to DOD contractors that are dealing with CUI in the context of DOD contracts and subcontracts and so forth, uh, you know, there ends up being a bunch of different types of CUI for which CMMC won't inherently apply. If you're not getting those other types of CUI from the DOD, then you are not uh, going to need a CMMC certification. So for instance, um, there are some categories of CUI in the NARA registry, which we'll link to that pertain to tax information that the IRS has a policy or a regulation of some sort that says need to be protected. And so as a result, they are considered to be CUI. If you are downstream from the IRS, and you deal with that covered tax information, then uh, you have CUI. You do not, as far as we know today, do not need CMMC because you're not a DOD contractor dealing with CUI that you got from the DOD. So even if election system software or something were considered to be a category of CUI, if it's not something that is involving the DOD and its supply chain, then CMMC is not relevant, even if 800-171 would be, because those are the minimum requirements for protecting it. So, yeah. So, uh, for, so for those, uh, people who are unaware who you are and what you do at PSC, could you maybe just sort of give us an overview of your role there and the organization? I think there's probably a lot of listeners that maybe haven't encountered PSC before. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Lauren Ayers. I am the Vice President of Defense and Intelligence at the Professional Services Council. So we are an industry association. We have about 440 member companies with three main functions. We are here to advocate, educate, and facilitate on behalf of our member companies to the government and then perform those same functions for the government back to our member companies. Um, I joined PSC recently in October from the Navy Secretariat. So I spent two years at the Pentagon <laughs> with the Navy. Um, and before that, about 13 years as an executing contracting officer. So bringing that experience forward from working major MDAC programs, um, mostly shipbuilding programs, bringing that forward to PSC has really been some good connective tissue to 
help support both the government and our member companies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you guys just had your annual conference, I believe. Uh, how'd that go? <laughs> it was great. So it was my first time out at the Greenbrier in West Virginia. We had almost 500 people registered. So we had a lot of really good speakers. We actually had, you know, Governor Jim Justice was one of our speakers and he just recently uh, put forward a senatorial candidate uh, himself as a senatorial candidate. Okay. So that'll be interesting to watch, but no, it was a great opportunity to meet with our members and really hear about what they're interested in seeing going forward and trying to give them some good content. Yeah, that's great. You know, and you mentioned your background as a contract officer for the Navy and DOD and that environment. And, you know, I tell people this story all the time, but like when, when we met originally and you said that you were a longtime uh, contract officer and that you were a former contract officer, uh, I almost fell out of my chair because uh, contract officers are a difficult bunch to get a hold of. And uh, people who are currently employed as contract officers are not uh, the most talkative group of people. Yet many, as we have discussed at CS2, uh, many of the roads uh, to and from CMMC and DFARS and NIST 800-171 uh, lead to and from the contract officer. And so, uh, you know, I think everybody at CS2 really enjoyed uh, your insight and your expertise on some of these topics. And we, uh, you know, every month recap some of the questions that get submitted to the Cyber AB Town Hall, in addition to other fun current events and topics. And there was a specific question that jumped out to me like a red flag. And this person said, the March Federal Register published final rules for CMMC and another corresponding part of the Code of Federal Regulations that corresponds to SPRS assessments for cybersecurity. So their question was, what do you mean when you say we're waiting on the CMMC rule to go final? The rules are finalized. And I found this to be very odd because all I do is press F5 and update to wait to see when DOD will submit the rules to OMB to start the review process. They are certainly not published as final rules. And I said, this is, so I must be missing something. So I went to the section and we'll have this up on screen. Our excellent producer, Dustin, will have this, you know, sort of overlaid on the screen. I went to that part of the Code of Federal Regulations that they're talking about where the clause for CMMC is contained. And at the top left corner, it says effective date, March of 2023. And so I immediately called you and I said, Lauren, what the heck is going on? Because no rule about that section of the CFR has been issued as a final rule or even as a proposed rule recently, yet it says effective on the page. And you told me that there are, is a bigger universe of things happening with rulemaking and the CFR that cause that effective date to be updated, which is what we wanted to hear from you today. So kind of where I wanted to start and, you know, answering the question that you posed was I always go to the CIO website as well, right? So this is DOD saying uh, CMMC 2.0 is published. When am I going to be required to comply with it? And mm -hmm. the first sentence here says it talks about a five-year phase-in period. Uh, and that only can be approved by Office of the Secretary of Defense of AMS. So even though there's a five-year phase-in period, no program is going to be required to comply unless they're individually approved by ANS. So I just wanted to pull people to this website as well. I know, Jacob, you guys have a bunch of resources, but this is also one to kind of 
keep an eye on. Obviously, the big yellow banner says it'll be limited during the rulemaking process. But, you know, what I wanted to try to walk through here is how I looked at problems as a contracting officer and how I trained my staff um, to work through a problem, because this is kind of a different language. You can look at one piece of information in a vacuum, but you still need to pull it all the way back up and pull all the layers out of where did it, where was it sourced from and, and where are we now? So I just yeah, wanted to absolutely. do a snapshot of that, which I think kind of got to the, the very specific question. Um, yeah. And then we can roll through FAR and DFARS, if that makes sense. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. All right. So what you and I talked about, Jacob, uh, on Friday is this top red circle, which you'll see repeated in these slides. So this is at the FAR level. And I wanted to use FAR 1.0, which is really maintenance of the FAR. So again, um, the idea that there is statute, right, whether it's executive order or put in the NDAA or an individual piece of law, then goes through, you know, uh, the CFR website, potentially goes to rulemaking, and all of this kind of falls out to what did people like me when I was a contracting officer, what did we look at? We went to the FAR, the DFARS, and in my case, working for the Navy, the NM cars, and they are all, they do all build on each other. So FAR 1.0 is maintenance of the FAR. And the second um, circle you see there is talking about the DAR Council. So the DAR Council essentially are the people that take those rules and the statute um, and whatever comes out from executive orders and implements them into policy and regulations for people like myself to use as we're administering contracts, putting together RFPs, that sort of thing. Um, and now I'm moving to the DFARS. So, mm -hmm. and the reason why I put these together in this fashion is to show you, again, this is learning a new language, right? And a lot of your listeners may never have played around with the regulations like this. But if you see, <laughs> again, the, so the FAR regulation effective date here is 316-2023, FAR mm -hmm. 1.201. This next slide is DFARS, again, 201.2, which they do stack on each other. And okay. the DFARS has an effective date of 3-22-2023. So there are two different councils. Um, and DPC, which is, um, so the DAR councils prescribed in Adobe as the Defense Acquisition Regulation System. And the DAR council is the one that's responsible for maintaining the DFARS and the PGI, which we'll get to. So who actually does that for the DOD? So if now DPC, Defense Pricing and Contracting, so this is Mr. Tanaglia who reports to ANS. They are responsible, as you can see in the first circle there, of managing the FAR and the DFARS. So this gets us to those effective dates. Um, so the, the blue circle here in the middle, this is the most recent. If you go to the DPC site, and I'm sure you guys can put the link in there for your listeners. Yeah, um, definitely. They meet regularly. I think it's monthly. I couldn't find anything that actually showed <laughs> the schedule, um, but they did have an update just last week. April 27th, and I didn't cut and paste all of them, but there's a whole list of things that the DAR Council addressed in their April meeting. Oh, Those okay. will then be incorporated to an update to the FAR. So oh. I show that to say these are regular. The red circle to the right is that 322-2023 date. And if you remember oh, from okay. the other slide and, and what we'll see, 323, 322-2023 is when they essentially pushed out a new version of the FAR. So that's the effective date piece of it. Yeah. Um, you can see that here. Again, these are from acquisition.gov. DFARS changes effective dates. Um, yes. Yeah, so and again, okay. 
Sorry, go ahead. So, yeah. And so this was a, sort of the example, I think, when I when I pinged you was if you if you are looking for information on CMMC and you end up in a very narrow part of the DFARS and the overall FAR and you're only on that page and you see what you have circled in red here in the top corner, that it's effective as of 322. And then you hear a bunch of people uh, saying, we're waiting for CMMC to, to become effective and roll out in contracts, you'd be like, what are you talking about? It was effective as of March. But what's really happening, like you said, is the larger machinery of the DAR Council and DPC and updates to the FAR and the overall set of DFARs is changing that effective date as they go through the normal pace of the machine here with updating everything. So it is not updated because the CMMC rule is final and effective. I think we all know that if that were to happen, that we would be <laughs> air horns and sirens and lights <laughs> and there's a parade and a band and there was a calamity everywhere if that were to actually be true. But but when I looked at it, I was like, I'm sure there's a reason why behind the scenes it says effective as of March. But to your point, it's it's not only another language, it's a pretty difficult language because there's no guide that says this is why this date is updated in this corner up here. I, I totally zoned out and forgot that like I was like part of the conversation here. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, will you just be quiet so that she can keep going so I can learn more? You can tell we don't rehearse these. Like we, we don't, you know, pre we do it live. populate this. Yeah, this is live. I'm like, why, who is this guy talking? Why can't I just learn more? Like, <laughs> well, you're being, you're being very kind, um, but it, that's exactly it, Jacob. It's, and the reason why I kind of repeated a couple of these pages was to show that they don't change. Right. So whether you're talking, 2.101, which is the very beginning of the FAR, or 252, which is where we go to say, you know, we need to incorporate these clauses into the contract. Um, that red circle hasn't changed. But this gotcha. was the other piece that you and I talked about on Friday, Jacob, that I wanted to, to kind of highlight here. So the red circle, again, hasn't changed. The, the Dark Council met. They pushed out some new uh, some updates to the, to the entire DFARS, effective 322-2023. But as you see in the blue circle at the middle, so this is 252, 204, 7012, which everybody who's listening to your podcast should be very familiar with this, right? right. Um, that did have an update in January 2023. So the clause itself, um, what actually would go into new solicitations and new requirements is different as of January 2023. I don't know what they are. Frankly, I didn't, I didn't do a side by side, but there's a difference between the effectivity date of the DFARS in totality. And then when you're looking at the 252 clauses, um, the effective date of the term itself. And gotcha. this is different because, you know, you might have an RFP that was released in 2019 and it's going to have a different 7012 clause than an right. RFP that was released in February of this year. Right. And you were saying, especially at CS2, I mean, you brought your hard copy versions is that, you know, as the different elements and cogs in the wheel here are being changed in independent manners, I mean, the entire FAR and DFARS catalog is being updated. Yeah, you know, the whole thing is moving along in, in different speeds and, and, and revisions, right? Absolutely. And that's what having an electronic version of this, especially with the speed of, frankly, change that we're seeing, having these hyperlinks. I don't know if you can see the arrow or not, but, you know, there's a prescription for this one. So if you go to 204-7304, which I have here, this is the prescription to tell contracting officers and contracting specialists like my former job, 
when do you include these clauses? And you'll see, you know, the 7012 is in all solicitations and contracts, including those using FAR Part 12 for commercial acquisition, um, unless it's a COTS. So the prescription, it has a hyperlink. If you want to read to a 47304 and then look at C, then it'll kind of take you there. So they do try to keep it fairly up to date. I won't say it's always as clean as it could be. Perfect example is the 7021 that we talked about. So mm-hmm. 7012 is, and you know this, you you guys both have PhDs in this more than I do. Um, 7012 is, you know, 800-171, incorporate that. 7021 is when that actual CMMC application, the program kind of goes live. And the prescription for that, again, 204-7503, you'll show here, this isn't a hyperlink. So I had to go find it separately. Again, gotcha. learning the system, trying to figure out it's, it's not um, it's not as simple as, as we would perhaps like it to be. But again, CMMC, this one was also changed in January of 2023. So the difference between the effectivity of the entire DFARS and the effectivity of a particular clause are things that you should, you know, people need to pay attention to. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, yeah. I, I think yeah, that sorry, ahead, I, just thinking off the top of my head, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. I th- no. Thinking off the top of my head, I think the January 2023 update on those because you see it on multiple clauses you see it on 712 721 you know for people for people listening if you end up going and you only look at 712 721 719 720 remember they are part of a much larger catalog and so the effective date january 2023 march of 2023 will be driven probably by other things than just rulemaking around the cmmc clause so just so everybody keeps that in mind uh, but yeah, sorry to interrupt you there, Lauren. No, not interrupting at all. I think that was a perfect clarification. And that kind of pulls me to, um, yeah. So this this links back to the very first slide I showed, which was talking about this iterative process of rolling it out. So mm-hmm. 204-7503 is telling contracting officers, when do you put 7021 in place? And I think it was in that January, 2023. There's probably language in there, but this is essentially saying, you know, again, you're beginning September, sorry, from now, from when this was issued until September 30th, 2025, you can only put 7021 clause in if it's been approved by ANS. So that's that right. last sentence there. Um, and you and I were going to talk about this at CS2, and then we ran out of time. But um, essentially, this is that phased rollout where the clause is there, they've updated it, they ha- now have timelines, you know, from now until September 30th, 2025. Right. has to be approved by ANS, but on or after 1 October 2025, DOD is putting a line in the sand and saying 7021, the CMMC clause um, and the program is going to be live for all solicitations, contracts, task orders, delivery orders. You, you know, you can see the language there. So I thought yeah. that was really interesting. And I don't know that that's something that, you know, we've kind of pulled the thread on here. Yeah. I assume that during the CMMC rule, if they're going to update that, that rollout, right, where ANS gets to select that they would probably revise 204-7503 and they'd say, oh, until September 30th, 2027 or something like that. And then from that day on, it goes in, but that's, we have to wait for the rule to come out to see if they're going to increment those dates. Right. Because again, this was, I think, released in January before we, you know, had some updates there in, right, in right. March or whatever that probably kicked the timeline out again. You guys would know. Yeah, about that. yeah absolutely. But, you know, this is kind of rolling through that as an acquisition professional, what do you look at? Where do you look for guidance? Yeah. Um, and this was the only other thing I wanted to to highlight on kind of that phase rollout. So this was this was a release from December 2020. And this is when I was working at the Pentagon. Um, and one of my staff, she was on essentially the 
the governance board or, or going to the meetings talking about CMMC. And when this kind of came out to say it's going to be phased through 2025, which is likely. So this phase out between 21 and 2025, the end of fiscal year 25 is September 30th, 2025, which if I had right. to project is why this mm-hmm. says until September 30th, 2025. So DOD has put it in a line in the sand through this, you know, this is a you know defense.gov press release saying we're going to do it incrementally through 2025. Right. Um, and this, these right here that you see, I believe are likely still the only programs that are authorized for the 7021. There's three for the Navy, three for the Army, and one for Missile Defense Agency. Yeah. Yeah, I think they said during their, you know, during their strategic review of the program that they were suspending that that issuance of 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 one onesie twosie approvals by ANS. Um, Correct. But yeah, this was this was really, really interesting to sort of show like, hey, we've got this question, which you know, the question came up, hey, what does this effective date mean? Which I assume is probably similar to something you would get from you know, uh, a newer junior contract officer. And so I was like, hey, Lauren, I don't know what this means. So yeah, that was very interesting to see how you stepped through all of the resources. But like you said at the beginning, not exactly the easiest to navigate if you don't know what you're looking for or where the answer might be, right? Yeah. And the other thing that acquisition.gov has is it also will archive. So you can see, I just took a screenshot of, you know, this is the FAR. It says DFARS, but ignore that part. But you know, they re-released the FAR on December 30th, 2022. So you could actually go back and look at what did the FAR look like in December of 2022, whether it's a zip or PDF. That's what I used to have an entire library full of old FARs, right? And you yeah. look back at the ones that were published last year and the year before to see what had changed. Do they do they ever publish just the red line changes that show just the delta? Or is it is this just a is this a, a project for chat GPT where we're gonna have to old, load old <laughs> archive versions yeah. to see what the difference is? So I think if you look at whether it's the CFR or um, even the, the Federal Register, some of them will have Word documents, some of them have red lines, but it's a it's a term by term. I don't believe that there's any full scale um, red line version to be able to track changes from one to the other. You'd really yeah. have to be looking at, um, you know, the onesie twosies. Yeah, it'd be um, nice if there was like a release notes, like with a video game update where they were like, we changed this, 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 this and this. <laughs> Because if it's just the full FAR and they said, here's your update, you're like, well, I, I don't know what changed. <laughs> well, and, and frankly, that's why I, I policy is not something I mostly did execution. Mm-hmm. This is very much there's entire policy shops like DAS and procurement. I worked the execution side at the secretariat, but I had a colleague who his whole team would be watching the Federal Register, we would be watching the notes. They sat on the DAR Council. And they're the ones that would be responsible for telling an entire service or an agency, oh, by the way, these six things have changed. Man, um, I got to be honest, as you're describing that, that sounds like, I mean, I know this is going to sound weird. It sounds like a lot of fun. And I would love to be able to do a field trip because that sounds, <laughs> it just sounds cool. It just sounds like a good time. <laughs> I mean, you got to be wired a certain way to enjoy it, but uh, sure. but you know, just this, this logic train. So, you know, we started with the FAR and then the DFARS. Now there's DFARS PGI, right, which is additional supplementary instructions. And I always forget what the acronym stands for. I think it's policy guidance and instruction, I think is what PGI stands for. But that was also updated on 322-2023. So then you'll see, you know, it also has its own effective date. Um, And I specifically, you know, pulled out the 204-7303 because, again, it's administrative matters um, talking about covered defense information. So this relates back to you know, 7012 and 7021. So there is this huge logic train 
that you kind of have to know to just step through one mm -hmm. by one by one to figure out, you know, what is the current guidance actually saying? Gotcha. Yeah, that's fascinating. This is and, absolutely and fascinating. So the last thing I know you guys, I'm, I don't want to drag you too far down a rabbit hole, but again, if this is helping educate your listeners to how do you actually find things, yeah. what I wanted to show is a snapshot. Again, this is just FAR part one. So this is just administrative and information matters. FAR is 4.1. DFARS is the next level down. Those numbers are 204.1. And you'll see contract execution, contract execution, contract distribution, contract distribution. But ah, you see- okay, yeah. So 4.3 is not replicated in, in 204.3 because you only replicate something if you have something different or additive that the FAR doesn't already cover. Okay, okay. So it's not a one by one. Um, and then if you go down and then each service has their own. So Army is 5104. I don't know why, but it's normally always Army, Navy, Air Force, unless that's probably when they were originated, right? Army came first in the Navy and the Air Force. Um, so they're the same thing here. You'll see contract execution, but the Navy, so NM cars, doesn't have a 5201, 5204.1, because we don't have anything else to add that's not already gotcha. in the FAR or the DFARBs. I see. I see. This is like, a, this is this is the ultimate uh, sort of bureaucratic nesting doll of, of, of what's going yes. on here. That's really, I haven't, I haven't ever seen them put side by side like that, but when you do that, it makes it very clear how they build on each other, like you mentioned earlier. And, and that's why, I mean, that's how I was trained. That's how I trained my specialist was even going all the way back to the statute, right? So some of yeah. them actually will have a hyperlink, you know, per uh, US 10, US code 20, whatever. And then you would actually want to go back and read the law to say, why am I doing what I'm doing? And then you follow it from statute um, to, to FAR, to DFARS, to NMCARS in our instance. Um, and I did need to make a, an exception here because my old shop, is specific that they do not see acquisition.gov as the official source of NM cars. So if you're doing oh. work with the Navy and you want to read the NM cars, they're actually, they hang it on the SECNOP page under my old office. Yeah. So. Well, that's, that's good to know that they don't recognize. I'm sure that those, those rivalries and things are driven by longstanding vendettas that are rooted in objective reason and not that somebody got burned from a bad update one time. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't have the history. It was before my time at Daz and P, but acquisition.gov I think is a lot better than it used to be, sure. but it was putting things in weird places. So we didn't want to essentially put bad policy out there. So they now have it and you can, you know, pull down the PDFs or the Excel files and all that of, of all the, um, all the appendices. But yeah. I thought it was interesting to lay that out, especially for your listeners that, haven't really thought about the fact that there's a whole bunch of different regulations. And this is just Army, Navy, there's Air Force, there's um, you know, GSA has their own supplements. Essentially, every federal and civilian agency likely has their own supplement. Yeah. That's what the S is. It's not just duplicative. It's right. Navy Marine Corps Acquisition Regulation Supplement. Um, right. They all kind of have them. Yeah, you know, we were actually just talking about this in a previous segment about the pending FAR CUI rule that would uh, make 800-171 the official minimum standard for all forms of CUI for all federal agencies in all federal agency contracts. And when you imagine how small of a snippet we're viewing right here in terms of the entirety of the FAR, and then you imagine that all of those agencies and then all of those clauses and guidance and so on all need to be synced up in the same way. Uh, it's it's no wonder that it's taken so long for the FAR CUI rule to sort of come around. 
Yeah, I mean, a great example is I think it was with the last, maybe it was a 22 NDAA. It essentially renumbered a bunch of the sections of the FAR um, by statute. So it took them a year. I think they finally finished going in and renumbering everything. But those councils, kind of where we started talking about who's responsible for managing and updating these policy and guidance um, documentation, that had to go through that entire policy and make sure that everything that tick and tied between those updates was clean. It yeah. it took like a year. I mean, that's just yeah. the, the nature of a big bureaucracy. Um, but I this is an example I did want to show of that hyperlink to the 10 U.S. Code. Again, I just went to the FAR and saw the first one that had a, yeah. a link to the statute. Um, but again, this is a good resource. If you really want to pull those layers back and figure out where did this come from, starting at you know the 10 U.S. Code or 41 U.S. Code, whatever it is, and then rolling it all the way through, that that's the way that we look at things when we're trying to figure out applicability. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, I'm sure for folks listening or watching now on Spotify video, in addition to our feed on YouTube, it's, it seems, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's really great. Um, yeah. Shout out to producer Dustin for making that, making that work for us. Um, you know, when you, when you look at all this stuff, you're like, man, this is a lot of details, but when you see the hyperlinks, when they're set up properly, the line from a statute passed by Congress to the federal register rulemaking process to the ECFR Code of Federal Regulations, to Title 48 of the FAR, to the DFAR supplements, to the service supplements all the way down, you you can see how they are connected. So it makes the world, I think, simultaneously smaller and bigger at the same time because it's such a deep rabbit hole. But I can't even imagine what it was like before all this stuff was linked online. It's not always linked properly, but it would be impossible to figure out if this weren't available online. Yeah. I mean, it definitely was a lot harder, right? You had to have LexisNexis to get to the, you know, the statute. I mean, there were a lot of other things that you had to do to be able to research what now is relatively simple if you know the language and if you know where to go. Yeah. Um, and, yeah if you yeah. have head trauma and you like reading this stuff like, uh, like I do, then, uh, then yeah, it's, 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 it's definitely great for the, for the productivity. Yeah. Um, the only other slide I had here, this was just a repetition of what we'd had um, in my mm -hmm. CS2 deck, which is, you know, the difference between a provision and a clause. But um, but that was it. So that was what I put together for you guys. I hope that was that was helpful. That was extremely helpful. Right. I'm, I am absolutely blown away right now because this isn't stuff. This isn't like for you, Jacob, right? And, and Lauren, this is stuff you're well versed in. I, admittedly, this isn't my 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 the thing that draws me to the industry the most you know and so like as i'm sitting here and i'm trying to absorb and trying to analyze what's so fascinating about what, what we're talking about i'm just yeah i don't even know yeah. what to say like, i mean big picture right this is one of the things that i find uh you know the the intricacies of the bureaucracy are fascinating enough but i find it big picture to be interesting because we are. We were just talking with Amira Armand about some very specific technical details of cybersecurity requirements, and in the next breath, we're tracing the U.S. code down through the Code of Federal Regulations from the perspective of a federal contracting officer. And those two worlds are not very far apart. And so this like strange world of CMMC has really, I think, uh, expanded people's understanding of. How, how many different facets of disciplines have to all come together, controls and technology and the legal and legal adjacent disciplines and contracting and acquisitions. I mean, 
there's a lot of stuff that is all sort of wrapped around this one this one CMMC acronym that's floating around out there. And it's hard to understand what's going on with CMMC without having an understanding of all those facets. But yeah, thank you for your time, Lauren, and explaining that to us because I find it interesting and I don't mind browsing through it. But I, I mean, I had to, I had to, you know, ping you because I was like, I don't know how to figure out the answer to this question. It just, it's not readily obvious. Well, and I think one thing that has been very obvious to me, even before I left the department and is partially or a lot of the reason why I decided to join the industry association that I did was to try to help bridge that communication gap Um, because words matter and statute is written by people who you want to believe have the best intentions at heart, but they're not the ones that are on the front lines like you and your listeners, right? They, they wrote things intending to do the best thing that, that they could perceive at the time, but how that actually gets implemented, how that's rolled out, right? You're the hundred controls. What does that really mean? 800-171. I mean, I think this, this whole universe, this whole ecosystem that's developing right now and has been developing, um, it's, it's how do we pull that thread to make it what it's supposed to be without yeah. creating damage, frankly. Yeah, and it, absolutely. you know, words matter. So it's, yeah, it's how absolutely. do we make them say the right thing? Yeah, absolutely. So for people who are interested, how, how can they learn more about PSC? How can they get a hold of you? How can they uh, how can they find out more about what you guys have going on? Yeah, absolutely. So happy to happy to link um, our website. You guys can it's it's pscouncil.org or pscouncil.org. Sorry, um, you can go there. Go there, and we have contact information. My information is there. Um, my email is airs at pscouncil.org. Reach out anytime, um, and Jacob, you know you can you can share my contact information and the link Perfect. as well. Happy to happy to chat wherever we can help. That's our intention. Um, Professional Services Council, obviously services sector, which most of your IT and and all of these folks kind of fall in that in, environment. So um, yeah, we have a lot of good content out there and good good opportunities to engage coming up here with a couple of conferences. We have an acquisition conference in June actually, which would be kind of good, I think, for everybody. It's not a member specific event. Um, okay, great. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. We'll link to all that stuff in the show notes and uh, everybody should check it out because Lauren is a wealth of information and she shares it all the time. So uh, Lauren, thank you so much for your time and insights. Of course. You're very welcome. All right, man. That is uh, the month of April. So I think we covered a whole lot of stuff. Anytime, anytime there's an extended Q and a AB town hall, we always it's back to back months, man. Like they're, they're back like they're, to back extended Q and A. Speaking our love languages, I like, think you it's. Know what? <laughs> we know think, that Jason uh, and Jacob only tune in to hear what the Q and A is going to be, right? That's right. That's right. Like yeah, that, so. that little snippet of the update in the front. That's just formalities. <laughs> then we're just getting to the part that Jason and Jacob really, really that's like. That's the best part. It, it is the best. Forty part. minutes of questions, and you're like, what? Like we talked about uh, at the start, uh, May promises to be a big month. We anticipate the publication of the proposed rule for the DIB-CS program, expanding tools and services and cyber threat intel from DOD to all defense contractors rather than just cleared defense contractors, which will be a huge story in and of itself for multiple reasons. Mm -hmm. And we expect sometime before June uh, to see the initial public draft of 800-171 REV3, which will be the first time that we see a uh, what the planned revisions are to that document in like five or six years. And that will obviously be a major story because of all the implications for federal contractors and DOD contractors specifically under CMMC. 
and there'll be another town hall at the end of the month. Are you, are you going to go on an Aaron Rodgers darkness retreat when, when <laughs> Rev Three comes out so that you can just be a, be one with the? Uh, yeah, I mean, we have we have some we have some uh, events that we're you know presenting at and speaking at and traveling to throughout uh, the month of May, and nothing feel fills me with anxiety more than the possibility of not being in the command center when a major revision or rule gets published. So. Uh, I mean, I will, emergency flight home. I will, yeah, I will be a wreck uh, pretty yeah. much every day until it comes out <laughs> because I will be uh, just imagining that I will be on stage somewhere presenting on possible changes the day that it gets published, right? Which is, yeah. which will be fun, but not ideal, right? So, but we'll see what happens. There's going to be a bunch of stuff in May. Um, so like always, let us know what you thought about what we talked about this month. And if you have ideas for questions or things you want us to cover in an upcoming episode, let us know in the comments. All right. We'll see you next month. See you guys. Oh.